Then you're in there. You don't have to participate even. You can just uh, chat with the other folks. Hey, just lurk about. And if you want to contact me directly without the uh, chat room, you can go to Yahoo Instant Messenger. And once you're there... The screen name you're looking for is AVRN Talk. You do that, and you will contact me. Alrighty, let's uh, let's get on to some things and stuff. All right. Oh, let's see here. Now, earlier today, I had mentioned a headline, and I couldn't get to the article. And there were there were problems with it, but I eventually got to it. And I think it's uh, it's good to bring to your attention because you see, they've got this push about oh everybody needs vaccinated, everybody's got to have this. Oh, you shouldn't have any kind of reason why, you know, you don't get to just say hey you know what I believe they're poison, I believe they're harmful, I don't believe they work, I believe your whole your whole way of looking at it is wrong, a fraud, and you're a bunch of criminals. Well, I shouldn't have to take that. But the government says, oh, no, you can believe all that if you want, but we're still jabbing you with this needle full of poison. That's what they want to do. Well, you see, they keep telling everybody, well, oh, you know, oh, sure, there's some little teeny, itsy-bitsy little... Uh, maybe it could create a problem for you. But overall, it's really safe. Well, really, it's a benefit to everybody. And the benefits far outweigh the risks. Well, okay, for one, there are no benefits that they can prove. All right? They keep saying, well, since we came up with vaccinations, look, measles have gone away, this has gone away, that's gone away. Uh, Yeah, but that's like saying, well... Let's see. You had a cold, and uh, because I came, and when you got your cold, I started to rub your belly. And you know, two weeks later, your cold was gone. So you see, me rubbing your belly created some sort of something that will make up a story and say, that's why your cold is gone, because I rubbed your belly. Because, see, I rubbed your belly and your cold went away. Oh, yeah, well, nobody mentions that, hey, guess what? Your cold was going to go away anyway. That's what vaccinations benefits are. They say, oh, we got rid of all these things. Well, yes, at the same time, they started with their vaccination idea. Hygiene became more of an issue. Doctors and nurses were actually beginning to wash their hands before they did operations and uh, things that that gave birth, you know, help people give birth and stuff. Wow, imagine. Oh, hey, indoor plumbing. No more sewage rolling down the streets. There were a lot of other public health advancements at the same time they started their vaccinations. Plus, the number of a lot of these diseases 
were on the decline even before they came up with vaccinations, and they continued that decline. So you see, they're just, you know, no, we don't want to let, look, you know, this might be something that we, you know, attribute to man and Rom, uh, Rom, man, Rom Emanuel, that's his name, yeah. And Hillary Clinton saying, oh, you know, no good crisis should go to waste. Uh, But this has been their idea for a long time. This is what they've done with the vaccination idea. They have figured a cover story in order to pump poison into people. To basically terminate you voluntarily. Your own, you're volunteering. Yes, doctor, please, please stick that needle in me. Shove that poison in me, please, doctor. Voluntary sterilization, voluntary death. You've all been brainwashed into accepting this. Oh, yeah, it took decades and decades. And, yeah, they're not just killing people straight off with it or nobody would volunteer. They had to make a viable cover story. And that's all the vaccination claptrap is, is a cover story for what they really want to use vaccinations for. And that is extermination. You don't believe so? Ask Bill Gates. He knows. The idea in itself is flawed. Oh, we're going to boost your immune system by pumping you full of poison, just like in nature, because you're exposed to these pathogens, and then your body makes antibodies, and you fight it off. Yeah, okay, as long as you go through the proper channels... That's like saying, well, you know what? Hey, water is water, right? So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to just basically take your sewer, your toilet water, and we're going to flush it right into your, you know, right into your faucet. Yeah, it's a little brown, but don't worry about it. Water is water. Folks, you know, (laughs) nature... When you're exposed to things in nature, uh, pathogens in nature, little needles don't fly through the air and jam it into your blood system. It's not the same. They are, de- they are, they are what they're doing is they're bypassing your immune system. They're completely bypassing your immune system and filling you full of poison, which is in turn damaging your immune system. So from the very start, their story about vaccination science is wrong. It's a lie. But if it was so good and it was so wonderful, they wouldn't be hiding anything, would they? Just like the GMOs. If it was so good and it was so wonderful, they would be out there saying, yeah, you know what? You're right. We want GMO labels. We want the public to know about our wonderful product. And we want them to know when they're eating a genetically modified organism. Because it's so great and it's so good and it's so wonderful. We want people to know. 
Well, isn't that how they ought to be? Isn't that what Monsanto should be saying? We want GMO labeling. But instead, they fight it with tens and hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide to keep that off the labels. Why, if it's so wonderful, if it's so good for us all, if we're all supposed to love it so much, why do they want to keep it secret? Is that what you do when you have a really great product? Shh, don't tell anybody. Shh, I got a really great product here. It's the best thing in the whole world. It's going to revolutionize everything. It's wonderful, but shh, don't tell anybody. Really? I don't think so. Nobody does that except Monsanto. So they sit there and they lie to you and they tell you, no, this is wonderful stuff. But we don't want you to know about it. We don't want you to know when you're buying it. Because it's so wonderful for you. And good things are best keep kept secret. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, here's something else they're keeping secret about vaccinations. In March... The federal government removed the latest vaccine injury court statistics, more than a year's worth of data, from one of its publicly reported charts. It was an abrupt departure from the normal practice of updating the figures monthly. Wiping the latest data means the adjudication chart. Okay, the adjudication chart on a government website no longer reflects the recent sharp rise in court victories for plaintiffs who claim their children were seriously injured or killed by one or more vaccines. Since January 2014, twice as many victims have won court decisions than the previous eight years combined. What does this tell you, folks? It tells you that the vaccines are becoming more toxic. In these court decisions, a judge ruled the evidence showed vaccines more likely than not caused the plaintiff's injuries. Also on the rise is the number of vaccine injury cases the government has conceded, up 55% in a little over one year. As a result of the recent website changes, neither of these trends is reflected on the current adjudication chart. In other words, you go there and you say, oh, everything's just the same. It's not gone up. Yeah, because they wiped the data. Since its inception in 2013, the adjudication chart included monthly updated totals. But shortly after publishing the March 2015 chart, the government removed the 2015 and 2014 data, reverting back to the outdated statistics from 2013. Hmm, somebody suspicious might think they're hiding something. I wonder who told them to get rid of that. Oh, could it be the vaccine makers? Could it be the politicians trying to push forced vaccination? Don't you think, folks, the fact that more people are winning now in the last two years than have won in the last eight years combined, don't you think that would make people pause at the idea of being forced to take a vaccination that could kill or damage them or their children? Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll just remove that. 
And that's what they did. The chart appears on the Government Vaccine Court website, which falls under Health Resources and Services Administration, an agency of the Department of Health and Human Services. In the usual vaccine, in the unusual vaccine court, the government acts on behalf of pharmaceutical companies rather than the public. You getting this, folks? So the pharmaceutical companies have set up their own little court system, and they don't even have to hire lawyers. The government defends them. They defend vaccine makers against alleged victims. So here's the deal. You go to the court, the government court, where the government is defending the pharmaceutical company. So it's the little injured man or woman going to the government court to fight the pharmaceutical companies, which the government protects. Money damages are not paid by vaccine companies, but through fees collected from patients on every dose of vaccine. So in other words, you're paying for your own damages. Is this great or what? HRSA says vaccine makers had no influence over the decision to revert to older data. Of course not. The agency said it did so to sync up with the statistic the Centers for Disease Control provides for the same chart that is only current through 2013. So you see the CDC's lying about it, so we're going to lie about the same lie they're talking about. An internal decision was made to ensure that all data was internally consistent and to update the chart only when all relevant data was available. In other words... We need some time to cook the books here. Court decisions won by vaccine victims since 2006. Chart shows through 2013. 59. Okay? You getting this? From 2006 to 2013, only 59 people won in the vaccine court through 2013. But since 2013 to 2015, that's only two years, guess what the difference is? Well, 159. Well, let's see. 159 minus... No, one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 165. 165 minus 59 equals 106. So here we have from 2006 to 2013, we had 59. From 2013 to 2015, which got wiped off the site, there was 106. Get it? Concessions won by vaccine victims since 2006 to 2013, 127. Actual number, because through 2015, 198. Vaccine victims paid after settlements. 2006 to 2013, 1,388. 
from 13 to 15, 1,488. Only about one injury case for every million doses of vaccines is compensated in vaccine court. Adverse events occur more frequently according to vaccine warning labels, but rarely end up in the little-known vaccine court. Still, vaccine court statistics can be useful in reflecting trends. The number of flu vaccine cases conceded by the government since January 2014 is more than double the previous eight years combined. In other words, they know. They concede. Yeah, 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 we did it, we know, it's poison, so what? Here's your money, get out. We just printed out of thin air anyway, and it doesn't matter anyhow, because all you patients are paying for it anyhow. It doesn't hurt the pharmaceutical companies. Total flu shot uh, victims' compensation since 2006, 1,091 at 2013, and up to 2015, 1,271. The number of Tdap cases conceded since 2014 doubled the previous eight years combined. Uh, let's see. So, another recent change made vaccine injury data more difficult to find. The adjudication chart used to be the first item that showed up on the statistics page, but that has been replaced by language stating that vaccines are safe and effective. Being awarded compensation for your claim does not necessarily mean that the vaccine caused the alleged injury. We're just giving away free money for no reason at all. Really? And they put this where the adjudication chart used to be. Somebody's desperate to get everybody fooled into thinking their little poison uh, murder idea here is a good plan for you and your children. Readers are directed to click a link to view the actual vaccine uh, injury statistics, but clicking it only leads back to the statement that vaccines are safe and effective. To find the statistics, instead of clicking the link, readers must scroll down past it. According to the government, from 2006 to 2013, over 2.2 billion doses of vaccines were distributed in the U.S. For every 1 million doses, one alleged victim was compensated in vaccine court. Since 1988, over 15,916 claims have been filed in vaccine court. 4,083 were compensated. 9,893 were dismissed. I guess when their little fund runs out of money, nobody gets injured anymore, huh? Because God forbid anybody make the pharmaceutical companies actually pay a dime. Because they're not paying a dime. Folks, the criminal dirtbags in Congress... I don't care who they are, Ron Paul, Ted Cruz, that that Cuban Rubio, or that traitor old fool McCain, I don't care who they are. They created a situation where they basically have given the pharmaceutical companies a license to kill for free. All the profits are theirs, none of the risk is theirs. 
They have absolutely zero motivation to make their vaccines safe. Zero motivation. Because even if people start dropping dead on the street right the second after they get a vaccine, pharmaceutical companies don't have to pay. Guess who pays? That's right. The very victims. Because you pay the fee for the vaccine that you just bought. Man, oh man, oh man. Are you happy yet, folks? And here's yet another Oh, this is such a wonderful thing. Safe and effective. Of course, we're going to hide everything from you. We're not going to let you know the facts or the statistics because it's just safe and effective. Just like GMO crap is really good for you. It's really great. It's just like natural stuff. That's why we got to get a patent for it. And we don't want any labels because we don't want you to know how good it is. Because we don't like to brag. Yeah, that's why. (laughs) You know, folks, come on. Well, anyway... It's time for a break. We'll please stump the room, and uh, we'll be back in a few.
have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for one forty. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is June 1st, 2015. It's Monday. It's about 8.40 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's all true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. You can call in 800-932-1980. You can go to the chat room at theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Look for the chat link, click on it, follow the instructions, you'll be in there, you can participate, chat away with the other folks in there. If you want to directly contact me, you and you have Yahoo Instant Messenger, AVRN Talk is the screen name to do that. So there you have it, there it is, and you can do that. All right, so, okay, stump the room. Well, I had a challenge earlier today. And uh, the individual that was challenging me never showed up. So I guess, uh, you know, hey, whatever. But the thing is, the first song, now somebody else in the chat room said they never heard it. To me, that's that's a really recognizable tune other than, you know, I never knew who did it until I, but I did recognize the song, but... The name of the guy who did it is somebody named, well, his his, uh, stage name is Gary Glitter, okay? Now, Gary Glitter is a a, a kind of a dirtbag, pedophile sort of guy. Uh, He's in prison right now, as a matter of fact, for rape and other deals, and he's he's made a deal of that throughout his life, uh, child pornography, rape, uh, you know, messing with the girls under 13 in Vietnam and Cambodia. And, uh, you know, he's just kind of a, a freak. But that's who did the song. And he was very popular, very, very popular in the 70s. Uh, he went by another name, um, played in a band, The Ravens, I think, in the 60s. But then he uh, went to Gary Glitter and really kind of kind of did a glam punk sort of sound thing, you know, and kind of changed these from uh, the U.K. And uh, it kind of changed, uh, influenced music quite a bit in the 70s, very popular. Anyway, the second band is, uh, the song was Down Down, and that's uh, Status Quo. Some of you might remember that band, maybe, maybe not. But anyway, that's who it is, so it was, and... Uh, there you have it. Nobody got them, so I win. 2-0. All right, let's get back to stuff. Where we were at was the vaccines, and I think I beat that into the ground. And, folks, if you don't recognize that vaccines are nothing but poison, you're not paying attention. Um, they can say, oh, vaccines are safe and effective. They're neither. They're not safe, and they're not effective. See, that's the whole thing. And when they are pushed to the wall and pulled on the carpet and shown, look, they're not safe. You've got all this kind of crap in here. How can this be safe? Well, 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 uh, uh, you know, the risks outweigh the benefits. Well, there are no benefits. The benefits are a lie. It's a cover story. Just like FEMA and helping you in a hurricane is a cover story. Just like the big boob bikini wearing assistant with the magician is a cover story to keep you from recognizing what's really going on.
Come on, folks. How many times are you going to fall for the magician's trick, huh? Well, as if those were the only problems. Here's a headline with a nice question. Is the stock market overvalued? Well, gee, I don't know. Let's see. A bunch of companies that don't really make anything are worth billions of dollars. Yeah, I figure they're probably overvalued. Are stocks overvalued? By just about any measure that you could possibly name, stocks are at historically high prices right now. From a technical standpoint, the stock market is more overvalued today than it was just prior to the last financial crisis. The only two moments in U.S. history that even compare to our current state of affairs are the run-up to the stock market crash of 1929, which that was a lot of fun, and the peak of the hysteria just before the dot-com bubble burst. Now, the thing to remember about 1929 uh, is the fact that, yes, 1929, the stock market crashed. But we were not fully admitted and said, okay, it's a depression. We have troubles until 1933, okay? It, it took like three or four years, three or four full years, probably more like three and a half full years before it was accepted and admitted that we were in a depression, so, why am I bringing that up? Because, you see, you're going to have a window of opportunity, folks. You are, and, you know, the thing is, people keep telling me from time to time, well, you know, the Bible says that your gold is going to be thrown out in the street and it isn't going to be worth anything, and I'm sure that's going to be true in the, uh, you know, at the end. Bible says it's true, I believe the Bible, you know, but... That's the end. See, the beginning of the end, you're going to have a window of opportunity. You might not have three and a half years. Things move quicker these days, if you'll remember. You know, look around. I mean, come on. Things do move quicker than they did in 1929. See, you might only have six or seven months. But when the markets go, you better be ready to react and you can't react unless you're prepared. Um, you, now is a great time to buy gold and silver. Okay? I suppose you could buy platinum too. It's a great time for that too because platinum is, is, is less than gold right now and it's not supposed to be. But hey, that's the way it is. Fact of the matter is, you know, if you're just looking to you know, sell it back to a vendor that will, you know, will buy it, then platinum's fine. But if you're looking for, well, okay, maybe I want to send it to a vendor. What if I get caught and I can't and I'm going to need it to, you know, trade with, then you might want to go with something a little more recognizable like gold and silver. Your average person on the street would have difficulty telling the difference between platinum and silver. 
Okay. Anyway, it's not going to go much lower than it is. Based on what it costs to pull gold out of the ground, it's been estimated anywhere from $900 to $1,100 is, is what it costs. Well, you know, the people out there saying, well, gold's going to go to $700 and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? If it goes below $1,000, the gold mines are going to stop producing gold. And when that happens, guess what happens to supply? Well, because whatever is available is available, and that's it. There ain't no more because they shut down the, the mines because, hey, cost them more to pull it out of the ground than what they can sell it for. That's not a good business model. So, you, you know, you might, you know, you might be able, you might be able Maybe it'll go $100 more down. Maybe. I, I don't think it will, but it might. It could. It could and still have the, the mind staying, you know, just surviving. But it's not going to go lower than that. And if it does, once the mines shut down and they stop producing, and what's left on the market is all there is, the price is going to start really climbing fast. Has to. It's the way it goes. Now, there is one other thing. But they're about overextended on this market as it is, and that's paper gold. You know, that's where they say, uh, well, you want to buy some gold, huh? Well, good. I, I have uh, gold here, and uh, you know what? I'll put a little post-it name on that bar gold over there, over there for you. Send me your money, and uh, your gold is safe with us, and I'll send your receipt and everything. So you sit there, and you go, ooh, look, I've got a receipt for a bar of gold, and it's somewhere really safe. Well, that'd be fine, except for the fact that you can't put your hands on it if something happens, and you can't put your hands on it ever anyway, because, well, you know, the paper people, they like this idea that's called reserve banking, which means I don't really have to have everything that I have floating around, meaning I have paper for 100 bars of gold out floating around saying, hey, I've got your gold here in my safe, nice and safe, here's your receipt. But in actuality, I only have 10 bars of gold. Uh-oh. Yeah. This is what's kept the price of gold down because, see, the supply never ends. As long as I got ink and paper, I can write receipts for gold that doesn't exist. And that's what the gold price is based on. Listen, things could happen really quickly with that because if it ever Anything happens, and see what would happen if the stock market crashed. And it's not going to be like 29 because they've got protections in place, but it can gradually disappear pretty quickly. What happens? What do you think people with these little slips of paper saying, oh, you've got a bar of gold here? What do you think they're going to do? They're going to say, I want that gold. Or, hey, I want the money for that gold. Something, they're going to take that gold out of the circulation, and a lot of people are going to want it. 
I want physical delivery. Well, they're not going to be able to physically deliver because they don't have the gold. So what are they going to do? Well, the price of gold is going to skyrocket. Why is that? Well, because they're going to have to go out onto the market and buy gold. And they have to buy a lot of gold. It's just like buying politicians. You know, you go over and you say, hey, which one of you dirtbags wants to work for me? For I got ten bucks here. I got ten shiny dollars right here, right here. Ten bucks, and it's yours. You do what I tell you. Ten bucks for you. Well, you're not going to get a lot of congressmen saying, sure, I'll sell out the country for ten bucks. You betcha. But you go running around Congress saying, I got ten million bucks here. Which one of you dirtbags wants to sell out the country for ten million bucks? You know what? You'd have the pick of the litter. Same with gold. Hey, they could say, well, let's see. Let's raise it to $1,500 an ounce. See who will sell. Well, there's going to be some people that sell. But there's going to be others that don't. They're going to need more gold. Well, let's do eighteen hundred. Let's do two thousand. Let's do twenty-five. Let's do three thousand. Geez, we still need gold. We've got to fill these orders, or we're going to jail. Five thousand dollars an ounce. Ten thousand dollars an ounce. Whatever they got to do to fill those orders, they're going to have to do, or they're going to be hunted down and killed. That's really where it ends for them, and they don't want that. So there you have it. Nowhere to go but up from where we're at. You need to prepare, folks, because it's on the way, and the stock market is way overvalued. And, uh, you know, hey, you can say what you want. No place uh, but go what up. But, hey, we could go double the stock market. Well, this is never what it's It's never done it before. Every time it's gotten anywhere around this level, it has crashed and burned. It's so obvious that stocks are in a bubble that even Janet Yellen has talked about it. But, of course, she will never admit that the Federal Reserve has played a key role in creating this bubble. They say that in hindsight is 2020, but what is happening right in front of our eyes in 2015 is so obvious that everyone should be able to see it, just like with all the other financial bubbles throughout our history. Someday, people will look back and talk about how stupid we all were. Why can't we ever learn from history? We just keep on making the same mistakes over and over again. And without a doubt, some of the smartest members of our society are trying to warn us about what is coming. For example, Yale economics professor Robert Schiller has repeatedly tried to warn us that stocks are overvalued. Ah, yeah, what could he know? I think that compared with history, U.S. stocks are overvalued. One way to assess this is by looking at the CAPE. Uh, it's the uh, cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio that I created with John Campbell, now at Harvard, 25 years ago. The ratio is defined as the real stock price using the S&P Composite Stock Price Index deflated by the CPI, divided by the 10-year average of real earnings per share. We have found this ratio to be a good predictor of subsequent stock market returns, especially over the long run. The CAPE ratio is... see. These guys are practicing economic sociology 
Because what they just said is, especially over the long run, just like sociology, you can make very good predictions and and guide society really well in large, large groups. Small groups are hard. Big groups are easy. Short term is difficult. Long term is easy. The CAPE ratio has recently been around 27, which is quite high by U.S. historical standards. The only other times it has been that high or higher were in 1929, 2000, and 2007. All moments before market crashes. Cape is, ratio is not the only metric I watch in my book, Irrational Exuberance. Now, this is the, uh, you know, the Yale economist. I discuss several metrics that help judge what's going on in the market. These include my stock market confidence, confidence indices. One of the indicators is that, uh, that series is based on a single question that I have asked individual and institutional investors over the years along the lines of, do you think the stock market is overvalued? undervalued, or about right. Lately, what I call valuation confidence, captured by this question, has been on a downward trend and for individual investors recently reached its lowest point since the stock market peak in 2000. Well, you see, all the indicators are saying, hey, this is going to go bad. We're going to have some kind of economic uh, incident. <laughs> yeah, but, oh, hey, the politicians and the news heads, they all say everything's fine. Don't worry about a thing. Blue skies, nothing but blue skies. Nowhere to go but up. Man, oh, man. History, folks. History. It's there. I mean, look, they're trying to hide the vaccination numbers they're not even trying to hide the economic numbers. You know why? Because everybody has convinced themselves that economics is just too difficult for me to understand in my little brain. Just like the law. Oh, it's just too complicated for my little brain. Just like, you know, your own health. Oh, that's just too difficult. We got to get a doctor because my little brain can't handle it. It's all BS, folks. It's not rocket science. And these people that call themselves the experts are probably some of the biggest dimwits ever to walk the planet, to tell you the truth. Sorry to say, it'd be nice if they were professionals and actually knew what they were doing, but they don't, for the most part. There's always exceptions to the rules. And they're the ones that are usually disbarred or their medical license taken away you know, <laughs> or run out of the country for tax evasion or something. Okay, those are usually the people that that happens to. The ones that play ball, toe the line, tote the water for the world order, they're the ones that you listen to on TV, and they're the ones going to sell you right down the tubes. Better prepare. Anyway... I got to go for a little bit. We'll be back in a few minutes with Dean Lauren for the second hour. And if you can stay, stay. And if you can't, well, thanks for listening. As always, we'll be back in a few minutes.
Space Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right, we're back. This is the Network. It is June 1st, 2015, and it's about, let's see, hang on here, i got a bad fader. It's about five minutes after, no, it's about six minutes after 9 p.m. Pacific time. It's Monday, June 1st, and uh, this is the second hour. So those of you just joining us, welcome. Those of you joining from the first hour, welcome back, as you know. Anyway, as you know, Mondays, we have Dean Lauren on as co-host. He's coming to us live from the future because he's over in New York City. And New York City, it is not 9.06. It is tomorrow 06. So welcome to the past, Dean. Well, thank you, Frank. And tonight we are going to burn the Quonset barn down again. All right. All right. Okay. I've got you. Um, (laughs) You know, I know that while you were uh, investigating the sliders and shooters last week, I was out. It was Memorial Day. Take a break, buddy. I was out investigating, and uh, I guess I have to give you the news for the international scene, and it shall explain Almost everything. Oh, almost. Almost. Well, you'll 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 tell us what part it doesn't explain, okay? Because that's the real important part. That's what we're going to burn the Quonset <laughs> okay. hut down with. And you know, folks, our Quonset hut is built with grade A American steel from Pittsburgh. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this going to be another nine one one where a steel building mysteriously burns to the ground? Well, you might say that, but I possibly couldn't comment on it. So, um, we're going to talk about, folks, uh, uh, about four or five months ago, I, we predicted, actually, I have, I usually I would say Frank predicted, but I think I nudged him in the direction of saying that Germany would fall at the beginning of the solstice this year. All right, that's the the country Germany, that it will crash to the derivative fall. Now, we've already predicted, and it did come true, folks, that France did collapse during the spring equinox. And we see that with Sarkozy renaming his political party the Republic in replacing a failed state. Now, Russia and France are totally dependent on the black and yellow market. Black market, everybody understands, but if you're Chinese, we call it a yellow market. And that is uh, a market totally dependent on weapons, drugs, counterfeiting, and gaming. Many people uh, are aware now that India is burning from the massive heat wave, they've lost all their crops. Folks, they are going into massive famine. Syria. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, I thought Monsanto promised us all that their GMO organismal crops are resistant to drought. What's up with that? 
not big drought. Did you tell me? Are you telling me they lied? Is that it? You know, there's one thing about drought, and then there's another thing about 110 degrees. Hey, you know what? I, I honestly, now everybody's aware that California is having a drought, and I live just up here in Southern Oregon, about oh, I don't know, uh, less than a hundred miles from the California border, and uh, we here in Southern Oregon had a drought that lasted probably 10 years. And when you talk about 110 degrees, we I remember, oh, a couple of years out of those 10 years, we had 110 degrees for over three weeks in a row. And, yeah, it's dry. Uh, well, Frank, um, you, di- you didn't have uh, your Monsanto. Okay, so no, now, oh, hey, hey, hey! All they grow around, uh, all they grow, grow around my area here is marijuana now. Okay, right. or should I go. say Monsanto, hemp? Monsanto marijuana. No. All right. So now we also have the Syria, I, Iraq, Turkey, and Israel-controlled phantom supply lines for ISIS for black market supplies. The horizontal pipeline for oil to leave the country and prison mercenaries fighting. All right. Greece, Spain, Italy, and bankruptcy. As Frank has predicted, he's constantly harping on Greece. It is crashing and burning. And we have to note Vice President Biden's son's Sacrifice the Attorney General of Delaware. Did somebody finally sacrifice him? Yay! Uh, no, we, oh. we shouldn't say, you know, just because somebody is sacrificed, we shouldn't say, you know, we shouldn't get totally, um, no, that's inappropriate. I don't think just, so. This is just the Biden like the family. sex at Martin Luther King High School between the teachers and the students. Um, that Gillibrand, Senator Gillibrand and Schumer are covering up. But um, <laughs> we, uh, you have to understand that Biden's son was the Delanore, uh, Delaware Attorney General. We didn't know that, really. I didn't know that. And that he was running for governor. Now, Delaware is a key state in that it controls all the corporate filings for all the major corporations. They're all incorporated there. So when he decided to run for governor of Delaware, somebody pulled the switch on him. And this was the same switch that was stolen from the MTA in the figure of almost two million tons of, no, two tons of copper Now on the third rail. Let me ask you something here, because now you mentioned Biden, and you're mentioning his son in this was going to run for governor. The switch was pulled. Now, let me ask you something else. Now, I don't know if you've seen the news, but Biden has pulled out of the talks he was in with, uh, I think, Iran because he broke his leg, and he's been transported back to the United States. That's Kerry, John Kerry. Oh, John Kerry. Sorry, Biden's the one that is now lost somewhere. He never talks anymore. Somebody finally got to him and said, no more talking for you. Okay, but you were condoning on about care. I was. I was mixing them up. My fault. Oh, oh well, don't worry. Kerry was actually bumped by a French car. They didn't get him, though. 
There they try. They try to get rid of Boston. We're going to talk well, about he's that. He's slithery, later. you know. He is slithery, so I'm sure he slid out of it. And okay, now, folks, many people don't know that Wall Street is trading only at the opening bell and closing bell. There is no liquidity between 10:30 and 9:30 uh, during the day. I didn't know that. How did they pull that off? I thought they traded all day long there. Only the union pensions are trading, which are about 98% of the money, are trading at 9.30 to 9.35 and 2.50 to 3 o'clock. Wow. Seems a bit of a controlled market. It's called a computer-controlled market. We, We now have... Uh, probably about 90% of the Wall Street brokers being laid off. So there goes our whole employment uh, quota. Yeah, and and what are the cocaine dealers going to do? Who's going to buy all that uh, you know cocaine now that those guys are out of work? Well, as Carol Burnett says, the Lower East Side of Appalachia, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Well, you know that's where they ship in all the drugs. Uh, from the Yemens in Greenpoint. And, uh, well, I guess uh, that's where uh, we'll we'll be talking tonight because we have to go to Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia is about to go down in a coup. We're going to set up an interim government. That is what Operation Jade Helm is for. Now, whoa, whoa, you're going to have to connect the dots for everybody there because Jade Helm is operating within the United States. How does that translate over to putting in an interim government in Saudi Arabia. Um, Jade Helm is a staging exercise in the United States where all the military equipment, a lot of it stolen already, a lot of it not even existing, was put out on private properties, and troops were going to be brought in, they were going to practice, but in fact they were going to get ready to use airbuses and uh, warthogs, uh, Senator McCain's warthogs, to send them over to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia in a clandestine exercise to uh, assassinate King uh, uh, Abdul, uh, King Salman, I'm sorry, and uh, the whole seven lines of Saud. But uh, it it appears that uh, there are going to be, there are operations to um, nix that. But what we found out and what we announced uh, uh, what we were going to talk about last week was that it turns out that um, law schools like Fordham, University of Law, have not <laughs> filed their state licensing reviews. Ever. Ever? Ever. I've reported that to William C. Hubbard of the American Bar Association and Lisa Barbieri of the New York State Attorney General, who also is a Fordham alumni like me. Barbieri? Sounds like it's a mob uh, uh, lawyer or something. She, <laughs> she, she's a very nice Italian young girl. I'm sure. And, uh, but she's well aware of it. I personally spoke personally with her about it. And it turns out that they, Georgetown and Fordham have been creating law uh degrees for phantom students. Uh, and then, of course, that's coupled with um, uh, birth IDs from the State Street Bank in, in well, uh, Massachusetts. Okay. For what Now, what possible purpose could they have for creating law degrees for, for you know, 
nobody, you know, just out of thin air for nobody. What do they get okay. paid for Number that? One, the, these are the same attorneys that are being put in uh, in the revolving door with U.S. agencies and then corporations such as Monsanto. Well, yeah, but if banks. they... But if th- and the banks. But if these are phantom law degrees, the the idea would be that these people never bothered to go to law school, so they're not really they're not really trained in the law. So what good would they be to these companies? All they have to do is give directions: do this, do that, do this, do that. And they execute and, this, execute that. And they need to be an attorney. Why? Why? Because their correspondences are, are non-discoverable within ah. the, in the company. Okay, see? Do you see? Now that explains it. Okay. I got gotcha. you. And it turns out that one-third of all the lawyers, foreign lawyers in Saudi Arabia right now, are foreign operatives for <laughs> the takedown uh, and the assassination of King Salman bin Abdulaziz. Well, you know... I. I hate to and say And one this. third of those lawyers in China are intelligence agents. And they are there to launch a financial coup against China that will take place sometime about an hour before our 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 Wall Street opens up at nine thirty. And so that way, a wave hits us, a computerized wave that wipes out American pensions, but it will be blamed on Asia. Okay. All right. So this way, they're going to start a fiat fiat currency war, which Frank has been talking about. But, uh, you know, the thing is, something like that could easily flow over to a more physical sort of conflict than just a currency war. Oh, that's what it's gained for. Of course. Once a currency war starts uh, and, and all the markets erupts, all the China is built on trade. It all, it, everything jams, and then there's a World War Three. Okay, mm. folks? And so... Um, and then, of course, our, our dramatic news tonight is that the Vatican has seized control of the top echelon of the U.S. military. And that now um, almost every one of our top admirals and generals are from Georgetown or Massachusetts. Ah. They are... Instead of, you know, uh, uh, Marine uh, General Dunford uh, being loyal to God, country, and family, he is now loyal only to God from Rome. So with that, folks, our president is looking to direct our U.S. military out of America away from Jade Helm, cancel those exercises, which those uh, huge numbers of supplies and military equipment are being sold on the black market instead of, uh, you know, being, you know, placed on American soil. Um, And he is going to direct them to Africa. Folks, it turns out that the White House is going to, or is considering, 
a dirty dozen million, meaning that it is going to take our American prisons full of 90% American blacks and offer them amnesty in fighting for Africa's liberation from Europe's slavery. Folks, it's going to be the Congo. Now, people don't understand, but most of the problems in Africa are being are arising from Europe's uh, control using prison mercenaries to go in and control mining concessions in the Congo, Nigeria, uh, all the Liberia, oh my, all of them. Anywhere you see uh, Ebola, AIDS, any of these who diseases. Those are your NATO forces operating for um, disease spread. Yes? And uranium poisoning. Don't forget that. Oh, and, and, you know, I want to remind everybody that uh, the ambassador from Tanzania once told me, once you find uranium on your land in Africa, you never go free. I can believe that. All right. And so with that... I think we have to go to tonight's music. Well, we certainly can. You want to do any uh, sort of input to it, or you want to wait? No, I, I want the room to try to. Oh well, I usually do uh, 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 dedicate this. Right. So um, I am going to dedicate this, of course, to um, Bill O'Reilly. Oh God. Okay. Because Bill O'Reilly dropped one of the shoes on Hillary Clinton that she was the founding member of Emily's List. Yay! You know, which is, in fact, uh, Emily Madoff. It's named after the Madoffs. Well, i got to say, I usually don't like Bill O'Reilly, but uh, if he did that, good for him. And because of it, Bill O'Reilly lost full custody of his children two weeks ago. Oh, the coup of the judiciary just took his family out as a response for him trying to take down Hillary Clinton. Wow. And with that, let's go to the music. Hey, monkey!
time, but you got to call me. vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. 
Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. It's June 1st, 2015, Monday, about 9.37 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's all true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. We got Dean Lauren coming to us from the future over in New York City because that's East Coast time, and that means it is tomorrow, 37, over there. So welcome to the past, Dean. Well, thank you, Frank. That was a great song. I don't know who that was. Well, actually, the room got it, but they they had a little help because I played that band in the first in the first hour, and they they kind of got the the oh wait that sounds familiar. It's a band called Status Quo from the seventies, and uh, that was a song called "What You're Proposing." So they were well, pretty popular back then. Now tell us about the band that. Uh, uh, that you brought, you know, where and when and all that stuff, because I knew right away that's a that's a Tracy Chapman song that I like quite a bit, and uh, I think whoever did that did a real good job on this. Oh, well, that was uh, Red Sahara. That was Sabrina Clary singing and Vita Tango on guitar. We taped that live last week on RU a Star at 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that's one of the bands I produce uh, uh, on television. All right, folks. They do their own production elsewhere. But, you know, right. when they come on the set, they're... You're producing. not the band's producer. Yeah, I get it. Like okay. the Sony producer. What's right. her name? Uh, the one that's gone. Yeah, Amy. <laughs> um, Amy. Amy is not gone. Project okay. Goliath. Yeah, Amy is gone though. Amy has been moved to, and she's she's no, laying she low producing no, shows. She, she's gone. She got a sweetheart deal. She will disappear. Forget. For, she's persona non grata. Actually, now. I know exactly. Gosh, I was reading about because it it's one of these things that I have watched on Netflix that she is now, you know, directly involved with. You know, it's kind of like. Okay, look, you go over there and work with those people. <laughs> Just stay out of the the, the line. No, line. no, she is. Okay. Xed. Persona non grata in, in, in Hollywood. Um, so, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, last uh, oh, May 20th, and by the way, folks, I have been officially uh, blacklisted. Uh, the, uh, the, the appellate division of the first department is denying my motion, even though we've, uh, it was uh, their report on my character was based on fraudulent information concerning like all my lawsuits that i filed you know for the schools with the kids getting raped and their school records being deleted and that it's been proved you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but we're looking at a two billion dollar heist a year in the new york state so i guess you really there is no uh other way for them to uh rule but against me because uh it now appears that cuomo uh, Governor Cuomo will be indicted, and he was the attorney general uh, when I brought charges against the CUNY Research Foundation for operating illegally a second higher second education um, uh, institution for uh, masters in education that I was uh, hired for to teach with the uh, New York Board of Education, and I was fired as soon as I was recognized as the whistleblower for the 10,000 unlicensed teachers that were being paid off by the United Federation of Teachers as having masters. They were really substitute teachers, uh, sex kittens, and then the rapes of the uh, 
the kids as well as uh, the uh, failing of students that pass. Well, but, you know, Dean, nobody likes a tattletale. That, that's quite right. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I actually went down to the U.S. Senate. Well, I guess I have to uh, uh, say that I went in for a hearing on Friday, to, and I decided I was going to settle with the Madoff issue that it had gone on. I, I had made my mark that Emily Madoff was rigging all these, uh, all the Madoffs, half of the Madoff, 70 billion was for rigging elderly estates, put, drugging them, throwing them in insane asylums. I'd been all over the U.S. Senate. And surely enough, right when I settled for up for like the 2008, the guy turns around, John Fisher, was with Wolf Popper, one of the feeder funds for Madoff, and uh, with Proskauer Rose. And he goes, oh, we just found another quarter million dollars. I looked at him and said, after 30 years, you just found it this yesterday, right when I, you know, and we're going for before the judge five to have you replaced as executor right now. Hmm. Okay. So uh, anyway, folks, <laughs> that's a big who brew. But let's talk about the Senate because I personally met with Orrin Hatch and Jesse Jackson at the elevators on the first floor of the Russell Building. Actually, I think it was the Hart Building. And um, now I've been going down to the Senate each week and, and explaining to them how half of the $70 billion of the Madoff money was uh, uh, set aside from raiding these elderly estates, throwing these women and drugging them into nursing homes, killing them. The other half of the $70 billion was from flipping public charter, uh, public school real estate into private charters and developing the title 13 properties around them into luxury co-op buildings. And that was what the Madoff feeder funds were about. That's uh, all those big developers like Mort Zuckerman, Fred Wilpon of the Mets, um, all these uh, huge developers. And, uh, and, and coincidentally, the same uh, Madoff victims match the Holocaust victim payouts, which are, incidentally, also ruled not to be public knowledge. The courts have actually said that the victims in the Holocaust suits and the Bernard Madoff payoff suits, the public is not going to see any of the payouts to any of the victims. Why, Frank? Well, I was gonna, I was just going to ask: Did the court, uh, you know, go into any explanation as to why they're ruling that way? No, because they were all uh, fraudulent, and maybe we'll have uh, some people. Well, I understand that, but I mean, you know, the court usually when they decide, well, we're going to do this or that or the other thing, they usually uh, follow up with, uh, and this is why we're going to do. Nope. No, there nothing. were no reasons. Just, no yeah. reasons given. Okay. We're just not gonna. Right now, when I was hanging out with uh, Senator Langford, who is actually a very cool senator, and you got to wonder about what how they just dismissed the whole, you know, court is to be public. Frank, there was Thanks. a coup by the judiciary about ten years ago, and they have virtually taken over every state and are looting the probate courts. Yeah, to fuel elections. 
of their own. They now have people that are getting law degrees without any accreditation in the law schools. The American Bar Association is fraudulent. Okay? They have taken over. Now, Greg Slavonic, who is a rear admiral, he's the, I didn't know that he, you know, he's the chief of staff of Senator Langford. So I'm sitting there with Senator Langford explaining to him that Madoff, half of Madoff was ripping off the public school properties, real estate. That's what Common Core is all about. So forget uh, Jeb Bush's nomination. Okay, when people find out that he's looting public school properties and flipping them to charters with John Roberts on the Supreme Court, oh, he's he's toast. Okay. Well, and, you know, and that does beg the question because you know Hillary is you know flaming and burning as as we speak, and I don't think she's going to stop because she's got forty years of crimes that she needs to cover up. And now we have Bush with you know stuff that obviously is going to make him unpalatable. So those are the two, you know, who's left. You know, that's the question. Who is the dark horse for well, for either party? Well, you know, it, well, that's what I, I said to Senator Orrin Hatch when I met him outside by the elevators. You're stalking these people, huh? Me, you know, waiting for them at the elevators. <laughs> Frank, the Patriot Act was discontinued at midnight last night. Well, part of it. All right. So, you know, that whole uh, thing about our records being taken without a subpoena and used for corporate espionage has been killed. And it was funny because I was I was going through the Senate with a we're seeing senators that I had contacted. So, you know, let's get this straight. Right. They knew you were coming. And you know, Ron Paul, they have closed circuit TV in all the offices, you know, and he's given his Patriot Act. Uh, what do they call it when you stand up and you fail to yield the floor? Filibuster. It was a filibuster. And so I made a bet with one senator, and I, I think it was Senator uh, Casey uh, from Pennsylvania and uh, his office, that I would be able to deliver all my papers to the, the other senators before the filibuster ended. And, you know, it was around, like, 4.45. You know, Dean, you got to watch out betting with those guys. They're welchers. Oh, wait a minute. I was in one senator's office, and I had a military war defense contractor calling his office, or actually her office, demanding that the senator help this defense contractor get into GE's meetings. <laughs> okay. So so I'm sitting there with or Senator Orrin Hatch at the elevator, and I'm going, you know, Senator Orrin Hatch, I'm the guy who taped Sonia Sotomayor, you know, calling me a miserable fag on the back room uh, with Katzman. Over the, you know, uh, failing of like hundreds of thousands of kids who passed and rapes in schools and, and, and all these things. And and I said, well, you know, but I'm also the guy who stood up and as much as people will hate me for this, I was the lone delegate for McCain in New York against Giuliani. So the worst of two evils and the lesser of two evils. And, um, you know, so. I said, you know, I have these papers for you, and I'm going to drop them off with your chief of staff. And he goes, oh, no, 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 I want them. I said, are you sure now? And so Jesse Jackson 
is standing right next to me. And I know Jesse from the National Action Network. And uh, from the days before I knew Al Sharpton was an FBI operative. And uh, I said, hi, Jesse. And I said, Oren, Oren, do you really want him? And he said, yes, I do. Okay, so I said, I'll give him to you. And um, so I was personally able to speak with Oren Hatch over the falsification of uh, Judge Sotomayor's uh, application to the Supreme Court uh, because in the case that uh, the appellate division is ruling about my character that I didn't win, that was the case. So you can see how the appellate division at the state level for the for for lawyers that you know says you can be a lawyer or not is ruling to keep out people that are good lawyers and and, and passing people without law degrees who didn't go to school at Fordham or Columbia and other places like that, uh, that are intelligence operators. So go figure, right? Um, so, but I want to bring this up because as I was, you know, this, this whole thing with uh, the filibuster for this Patriot Act, folks, there's a remake of a movie and it's not going to be very good, but it's The Man from Uncle. Well, that's a now, shame. You know, I like that old that the old series. Well, you do know what Uncle stands for. Oh, United you know, I used to. United Network Command for Law Enforcement. In other words, the Joint Terrorism Task Force that was disbanded for creating fraudulent phantom budget and operations across the United States which was downloading our phone records, including mine, because I was opposing Giuliani during his presidential election. And it was his delegate to New Jersey, Charlie Modler, who was sitting on my license while I was suing Giuliani before Sotomayor that cans my license for never having won a case. So... I have to say to people, no, a united network command of law enforcement under NATO doesn't work. (laughs) Okay, Europe is burning, and it will probably not survive past July. And I don't think that we have enough rope to throw to Europe and still save the United States. When you say won't survive what do you mean by okay okay let's say you're right what do you expect then to see in europe in say july i mean okay or august even i mean is the place gonna are the cities gonna be burning because they don't seem to burn their cities down like we do there will be riots yes there will be riots there will be uh, a depression in in europe Germany will probably not weather the depression as bad, but you are going to see that in Italy, and Italy will burn. Spain will riot. Uh, Greece, they'll go. Aren't they already rioting in Greece? (laughs) No, in Greece they'll have a party. I know the people in Greece. I partied with them in in Helkidinki, Calithia. Who doesn't uh, like a place named Heli Dinkley? Or whatever it is. I mean, come on. Okie dinky, man. <laughs> you um, see? <laughs> get it right. 
And uh, so it, it's we have no alternative but to pull back the rope. I mean, at this point, every state's economy in the United States is falling. And the number one cause that is doing it is our prisons. It's a drag on every state's budget. We don't need those people in prison for Rockefeller laws, which should have never been on the books. Well, and, you know, there are there's a question like here in Oregon, and I'm sure they've got the same question in Washington and Colorado, where marijuana has been now made legal or decriminalized, whatever way you want to put it. The fact is, there are a lot of people still in prison for, you know, minor marijuana uh, infractions that they're in prison for. Because, you know, they got long sentences for that sort of thing because those are good workers. See, violent criminals cause trouble. They're not a good worker. They don't want to keep you in prison. They're mercenary material for Africa. Yeah, but you people who just, oh, gee, you got caught with a bag of weed in your car or something. Oh, no, we can keep you in jail for years because, uh, you know, you can work. And we can let all the guys on Wall Street who sold billions of dollars of mortgages out on uh, personal recognizance. Yeah, they never got in there. But, I mean, the thing, the question is... Are the states going to, now that those states, at least those three states, have legalized it, are they going to go back and say, well, you know, it seems kind of stupid to keep somebody in jail for something that's legal now? You know, we should just let them all out because anybody who's not a violent offender, you know, forget it. Out. You know, you shouldn't have been in there in the first place. Okay? Yeah, but then the question is, where would all these people go get jobs? There aren't any. Better than keeping them incarcerated. Oh, I think it would. I I agree, but I'm just saying, okay, now we've gotten rid of that problem. Now we have another problem. What's going to go on with this? I mean, where are they going to live? How are they going to work? What are they going to do? There are no jobs. Well, you know what? They can join the military. Ah, so it's off to Africa with them too then, eh? Well, look, you can have money in your pocket. You can free Africa from these European concession of slave owners. And you can come back and buy a house and, you know... Well, wait a minute. See, you're counting on the whole coming back part. Well, yes, sir. Yeah, well, they don't all come back for one. And most of them that come back, come back with uh, some serious problems. Yeah, but we got General Dunford coming oh. on board as our Joint Chief of Staff, who hails from Georgetown, the Jesuit University of Rome. Well, then everything will be okay. Don't you think so? <laughs> yeah. And I know for a fact when Air Admiral uh, Joe Richards, uh, John Richardson of the Navy, who's from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, comes on as the head of the Navy, that we will have no problems in the South China Sea, nor any problems whatsoever with the clandestine shipping of drugs into America using the sea, ocean ports through the Gulf, the Atlantic, or Pacific. From MIT, eh? Well, we should have some robots uh, maybe uh, captaining those ships, eh? Yeah, you know, uh, keeping those radioactive uh, fish 
from Japan from invading our coast. See, you know, it would be a lot. It would have been a lot better to have a robotic ship, uh, an aircraft carrier, you know, like the one that got nuked from Fukushima over there. You mean the USS Reagan? Yeah, yeah. It would have been a lot better if that would have been a robot ship. You mean, you mean, with the thousands of sailors who were radiation massively contaminated from drinking the water? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those that ones. was just siphoned right in from the ocean. Well, yeah. Uh, that are dying as we speak right now. Oh, shh. Nobody's supposed to know about them. Okay. So, um, See, nobody likes a tattletale. What about those <laughs> 10,000? Well, actually, there's more like 80,000 bunker fish that just came up, washed ashore in Long Island. You know, I massive, hadn't heard of that. Massive amounts of fish are dying on Long Island, folks, in the midst of the Montauk, Montauk, Montauk. But anyway, uh, you know, I read a story, too, that um, the Pacific Shelf is becoming a barren wasteland. And all the, like, seals and whales and every uh, water uh, creature that eats plankton is dying because the plankton's all gone and they're starving. Right, because they're dumping all the fracking stuff. The, the seas are becoming acidified, folks, because of all the fracking, like in the um, North uh, Sea oil, or the North Sea fracking stations. You see, when they frack to get this oil and gas underneath the ocean, that fracking oil comes out that they use to drill with mm-hmm. Extremely acid corrosion. Plus, they're doing gold mining and just dumping the arsenic in the ocean. Israel is using massive amounts of seawater and desalination and dumping the salt back in. So, folks, between the salt killing the plankton, the acid, um, and and various other, you know. Well, harvesting going on in the ocean. There's no wonder it's well, all not done. Do you know, we're almost out of time, but the thing is, in California, uh, they've come up with a real smart plan to take all the oil refinery and oil industries' wastewater and start irrigating crops with it. Isn't oh, that Lord. a great idea? Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> it's that the heavy metals in that water will... will Totally destroy the, the the lands and make them uninhabitable for, you know... Yeah, you're no, the, nobody's supposed to know that. Shh. Nobody likes a tattletale. What is it, chromium-6? Whatever they use, you know, whatever they use. Now, they say, oh, well, we're, we're cleaning it up. Yeah, but they've done tests on it, and it's not clean. You know, it's still dirty, and it's... And they're doing it, and Governor Moonbeam Brown approved it. Now... There's a group uh, suing over it and saying, this is a bad plan, don't do it, but we'll see how it turns out. But they're already doing it, so, you know, bad news. Anyway, thanks for being on, Dean. We will uh, see you again next week. Folks, as always, thanks for listening.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. The long-awaited new millennium was finally upon us, and although it was a time of great celebration, the night was also met with apprehension. Now as the next century rapidly approaches, there have been very legitimate concerns about potential Y2K problems and terrorist threats. And John Walsh of America's Most Wanted is in the command center of the New York City Mayor's office. More than 50 state federal agencies are watching and ready to react to any situation. Starting last Wednesday, more than 100 crisis managers began round-the-clock monitoring of New York's critical systems. And we're on the 23rd floor here, so this place is virtually flood-proof and chemical warfare-proof. As the world turned before us, it became clear that Y2K had been overblown. It is too early yet to say that all is well, but so far, as the FAA says, that uh, not a plane was affected. The word came to Washington that all is well. So far, all of the briefings in Washington have told us that everything is green, which means that all computer systems are so far working in matter. The Pentagon is pleased, and it looks like this Y2K turn may turn out to have none of the trouble that anyone predicted. Tonight we celebrate the change of centuries, the dawning of a new millennium. We celebrate the future, imagining an even more remarkable 21st century. So we Americans must not fear change. Instead, let us welcome it, embrace it, and create it. Such a triumph will require great efforts from us all. It will require us to stand against the forces of hatred and bigotry, terror and destruction. It will require us to make further breakthroughs in science and technology, to cure dread diseases, heal broken bodies, lengthen life and unlock secrets from global warming to the black holes in the universe. Although Y2K turned out fine, there was a definite sense of disappointment. The coming of the new millennium seemed anticlimactic. There was no discernible difference between the years 1999 and 2000. As the year passed, this feeling only grew stronger. With a presidential election featuring two of the most boring candidates Americans could remember. There was some excitement as an extremely close election ended in controversy over who had won. But after the dust had settled, the title of Commander in Chief went to this guy. Then it was back to business as usual with George W. Bush as the most boring president in history. I'm working on some initiatives. You'll see. I mean, One year later, something happened that would change the world forever. That morning, we watched in horror and disbelief 
as reality resembled the fiction of a big-budget Hollywood disaster film. The nation was in shock. How did this happen? Who flew those planes? What are we going to do? These were the obvious questions which demanded answers. And we didn't have to wait very long for those answers. Nineteen Muslim extremists had hijacked airliners with box cutters. They targeted major U.S. landmarks to get their message across. We hate America and its freedom. These men had been led by Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind the anti-American, radical Islamic group known as Al-Qaeda. Luckily, American troops had already been amassed in and around Afghanistan, the country where bin Laden was hiding in a cave. As the military went to work in Afghanistan, we the people were asked to make some serious changes at home. The war on terror had begun, and with it came the expectation that certain liberties would have to be sacrificed in the name of security. We found ourselves living in a post-9-11 world. As the world changed all around us, a fanatical form of patriotism offered condolence to those mourning the loss of the now distant good old days. Boredom was a thing of the past. Changes came faster than they ever had before. While most people were slapping red, white, and blue stickers on their bumpers, the United States government was busy holding a conference concerned with changes so large that they promised to alter human nature itself. 21st century goals were discussed in preparation for what would come to be known as the Age of Transition. of Transitions was coined by Newt Gingrich in his introduction to the National Science Foundation and Department of Commerce sponsored workshop on NBIC technologies. The workshop featured a wide range of participants from governmental and private institutions such as NASA, MIT, Carnegie Mellon University, the Department of Defense, Hewlett Packard, and many more. It was a chance for experts in the fields of nano, biological, information, and cognitive technologies to discuss their visions for the future alongside government officials. And the goals discussed for the future were nothing short of Promethean, with the key goal stated as enhancing human performance. This in turn would lead to a more efficient societal structure. Indeed, technological convergence was given as the answer to all of the world's now infamous global problems. It promised to bring upon a new renaissance of human development. It was the hope of integrating humanity with nature to save the Earth. Visions laid out included robotics, 
cybernetics, artificial intelligence, life extension, brain enhancement, virtual reality, genetic engineering, and even teleportation. Enhancing human performance would require merging human biology with technology. Brain-machine interfaces, or BMIs, would allow the control of machinery with the brain itself. Implantable brain chips would also be able to store information and enhance cognitive function. The ultimate human-machine symbiosis could be to download an actual copy of a person's brain into a supercomputer. This would allow someone to effectively live forever within a computer-generated virtual simulation. More subtle concepts such as using virtual reality in classrooms were also discussed. And of course, the military implications of convergence were quite obvious, as cybernetic enhancement of human performance is inevitable. Achieving these visions requires the decoding and understanding of complex systems. The most important complex system being the human brain. After all, it is the driving force behind human performance. Through the use of bioinformatics, functions of the brain could be understood. Bioinformatics is the process of collecting data from a biological system in order to understand how that system works. The next step in the process would involve biomimetics, the mimicking of those same biological systems. Using this process could enable the development of artificial intelligence. A stated military goal for artificial intelligence is the creation of uninhabited combat vehicles. Removing the pilot would result in a more combat agile aircraft. These machines would also have the ability to maintain themselves. The use of new materials created with nanotech would enable lighter, stronger, high-tech solutions. And of course, the super soldier was also mentioned at this conference. All sorts of new techniques, from pharmaceuticals to robotic exoskeletons, can make this vision come true. It's important to realize that this report clearly states that cybernetic enhancement of human performance is inevitable. With Newt Gingrich proclaiming, those countries that ignore these patterns of change will fall further behind and find themselves weaker, poorer, and more vulnerable to their wiser, more change-oriented neighbors. Mr. Gingrich conservatively calls for a tripling of the National Science Foundation budget. He also mentions George Bush's approval of a $604 million increase towards the nano budget. Convergence is the priority area of importance in implementing the great promise of a new day for the 21st century. One group stands above all others in applauding this funding for convergence. They are known as transhumanists, most prominent among which are professors, philosophers, scientists, and celebrities. The transhumanists see a world of problems, just begging to be solved with converging technology. Sometimes we don't see a problem because either it's too familiar um, or it's too big. 
can't see it because it's too big. The first is death is a big problem. If you um, look at the statistics, the odds are not very favorable to us. So far, most people who have lived have also died. Existential risk, the second big problem. Existential risk is a threat to human survival or to the long-term potential of our species. The third big problem is that life isn't usually as wonderful as it could be. I think that's a big, big problem. There are just those moments that you have experienced where life was fantastic. And you wonder, why, why can't it be like that all the time? Suppose we fixed these things. The transhumanist golden age will kick off with an event known as the singularity. The singularity will occur at the point which artificial intelligence surpasses the capabilities of the human brain. Hello, I am Kimbo. In the near future, you and I are going to be very good friends. Is this really the best if we can dream of? Is this, is this the best we can do? Or is it possible to find something a little bit more inspiring? If we want to achieve this, what in the world would have to change? Um, and this is the answer. We would have to change, not just the world around us, but we ourselves. Not just the way we think about the world, but the way we are, our very biology. Human nature would have to change. So we could think of adding on different new sensory capacities and mental faculties. Brain implants have the potential to treat a wide range of conditions in the very near future. A team at the University of Southern California is working on an implant to replace the hippocampus. The chip was tested by interfacing it with the brains of rats. You can improve the response of the rats by about 50 or, or 70 percent, so we do see an improvement in the rat's performance. 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 The next step will be to develop the chip for humans. When you go out to the late 2020s, everybody, almost everybody, will have some amount of non-biological intelligence inside their brains. It's going to happen this very gradual way, by introducing non-biological intelligence that gradually becomes more and more sophisticated with new versions. As you go to the 2040s, and the non-biological, the machine portion of intelligence can be vastly more powerful than the biological portion. The biological intelligence will be pretty trivial at that point, and ultimately that is really where the action is. My personal view is that we are the information, the processing going on in our minds, which means that an uploaded mind would actually be the same person. A computer copy of me would be me. In the same way that we have 100-year-old cars now that are working just as well as they did when they rolled off the production line, insofar as there were production lines back then. Um, similarly, we will, once we become able to implement sufficiently comprehensive repair and maintenance technologies, we'll be able to do the same to the human body. There will be cyborgs. I see that as inevitable. But I don't think it's going to solve the problem. In fact, I think it'll just make it worse. Because... I mean, imagine you're a Terran and your next-door neighbour starts going cyborging, right? Starts adding components and then suddenly the person next door is capable of learning a human language in just by, you know, in seconds. So you would then get a real split in human capacities because 
these cyborgs are no longer human in effect, they'd be sort of superhuman. Now for the first time in human history, in the information revolution, we can begin to become masters of intelligence. This mastery will offer us unparalleled freedom and opportunities. It has the potential to enrich our lives more than anything we've seen before. All revolutions have winners and losers. This revolution is no exception. But I would say the big losers are the people who say they don't want to get involved. They're the ones who are going to discover that being a little bit out of touch will have some unpleasant consequences. They're going to get uh, a lot of people who do want to upgrade themselves, no question about that. And there'll be commercial interests and political interests supporting those groups. There's a lot of money to be made here, a lot of power, not just in a military sense, but in an everyday sense, uh, in terms of who gets jobs and who doesn't. From cyborgs with very long lifespans to downloading consciousness itself into a machine, Transhumanists say that it is impossible to predict exactly what a post-human will be, but it will indeed be better than human. Such lofty promises are understandably being embraced by many people in search of a better world for everyone. So-called techno-progressives wish to see this technology developed, but also want to make sure that it is equitably distributed throughout all strata of society. Techno-progressives are rivaled by various people, including bioconservatives, those people opposed to the creation of post-humans, and surprisingly, also by experts within the fields of convergence itself. Marvin Minsky, the originator of artificial neural networks and the co-founder of the Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT, has said, Ordinary citizens wouldn't know what to do with eternal life. The masses don't have any clear-cut goals or purpose. No matter how you look at it, the singularity is being promised as the great solution to our 21st century global problems. Thanks to such early work as the Human Genome Project, we will be able to decode DNA itself. Through the use of applied genetics, science will be able to improve the human race. What most people don't realize is that this concept is not new. It is, in fact, a repackaging of what was once called eugenics. The term eugenics means good genes or good origin. It was coined in 1883 by British scientist Sir Francis Galton. He defined eugenics as a moral philosophy to improve humanity by encouraging the best and brightest to breed. Galton was the half-cousin of Sir Charles Darwin, the famous originator of the theory of evolution, which also would come to be known as Darwinism. The three main tenets of Darwinism are the evolutionary transformation from one species into others, natural selection is the cause of divergence in species, the drive behind evolution is the sexual reproductive instinct and that life is a constant struggle for survival. Galton actually used the theory of evolution to substantiate his new science of eugenics. In his book, Studies on Hereditary Genius, he attempted to prove that the aristocratic families of the British Empire were in fact a superior race. <laughs> 
The fact that in the struggle for life, they had made it to the very top of society proved that they were the best that humanity had to offer. It is important to note that Darwin's famous Origin of Species is actually subtitled Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Not surprisingly, the Royal Society, a scientific institution dedicated to the improvement of natural knowledge, picked up on these new ideas and promoted Darwin heavily. Being a creation of the British monarchy, the Royal Society was obviously in favor of promoting the idea of the genetic superiority of the royal family. Science itself was being positioned to replace the old religious appeal of the divine right of kings to rule over the inferior masses. Darwin himself stated, elite status is prima facie evidence of evolutionary superiority. Through scientism, science as religion, Darwinism could in fact bring about social change. Social Darwinism would manifest itself as eugenics. To eugenicists, the masses were cattle, with Galton calling eugenics the science of improving the stock. The rise of scientism spawned the widespread proliferation of eugenics as it reached American shores at the turn of the century. The Eugenics Record Office in Cold Springs Harbor, New York, went to work amassing hundreds of thousands of family pedigrees for genetic research. They also lobbied for state sterilization acts and other eugenic legislation. In 1899, Henry Clay Sharp, a prison physician, began sterilizing degenerate prisoners. And later in 1907, he was a key advocate for a law in Indiana which was passed mandating the compulsory sterilization of degenerates throughout the state. In 1921, the American Eugenics Society was formed and began propaganda campaigns which included the promotion of eugenics in churches, schools, and state fair exhibitions. Funding for American Eugenics came from the Carnegie, Harriman, and Rockefeller families, among others. Eugenics was being accepted as a genuine form of science. Social Darwinism made strong advances toward a world in which scientism would fulfill Galton's dream of having eugenics be the religion of the future. But a major setback occurred at the end of World War II. It was discovered that American eugenics had been a major influence on Hitler's final solution. In 1934, Rudolf Hess had stated that National Socialism is nothing but applied biology. Hitler had only wanted to preserve the best German stocks and elevate them to a dominant position within society. It was at this point in eugenics history that a crucial move had to be made in order to hide eugenics from the now aware masses of humanity. Prominent eugenicist Julian Huxley stepped up and offered a solution. He simply invented a new word to replace eugenics, that term being transhumanism, which he defined as a need for mankind to realize the importance of steering the direction of its own evolution. Yes, eugenics.
Eugenics was one of the original aspects of transhumanism, and it is no surprise as Julian was the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley, who had been a president of the Royal Society and one of the most well-known advocates of Darwinism in its early days. Julian, being properly raised, was educated at Oxford, his specialty being evolutionary biology. He went on to many high-level positions, which included the titles of Vice President and President of the British Eugenic Society, which of course had the task of removing undesirable variants from the human gene pool. Julian Huxley has said the following of eugenics. The lowest strata are reproducing too fast. Therefore, they must not have too easy access to relief or hospital treatment, lest the removal of the last check on natural selection should make it too easy for children to be produced or to survive. Long unemployment should be a ground for sterilization. Transhumanism was born out of humanism which is yet another form of scientism, characterized by its faith in the power of human beings to create their own future. Yet another clever rationalization for eugenics as the creative force behind man-made evolution. No one doubts the wisdom of managing the germplasm of agricultural stocks, so why not apply the same concept to human stocks? Among Huxley's many distinguished positions, one which stands out was that of being the first ever Director General of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. The job of the organization being to bring culture to the third world. Culture being the worldwide spread of eugenic philosophy. It will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care, and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake, so that much that now is unthinkable may at least become thinkable. Darwinism is a religion to the global power elite, who do believe themselves superior to the masses of humanity. Humanism and transhumanism were clever disguises created specifically so that global eugenics operations could be carried out without being noticed. Insiders referred to their continued work as crypto-eugenics as they were carried out covertly. Prominent among this crowd was the grandson of Charles Darwin, Charles Galton Darwin, a distinguished fellow of the Royal Society and president of the British Eugenic Society. In 1952, his book, The Next Million Years, was published. In it, he describes five great revolutions throughout human history, the fifth of which had not yet happened, but when it did, it would kickstart the next million years of human evolution. This fifth revolution would involve using science to alter human nature itself, possibly creating a race of supermen. This, of course, is the familiar transhumanist ideal of the posthuman. If man is really a tame animal, there is no reason why breeds of man should not be created. Although, Galton Darwin was skeptical of this point, because he believed that man is untamable. He goes on to illustrate this point with a hypothetical story of an island 
in which a visionary director gathers a variety of highly skilled people and institutes a social Darwinistic breeding program. Members of the island breed with each other based on their unique talents, intelligence, or beauty. For instance, two athletic people would give birth to a new generation of superior athletes. The population would become tame, but the island's director would not. Though it might conceivably be possible to tame the majority of mankind, this could only be done by leaving untamed a minority of the population. Moreover, this minority would have to be the group possessing the most superior qualities of all. The message is clear. Darwin is legitimizing the elite ruling class which he himself is a part of. The third tenet of Darwinism, that sexual instinct causes conflict, is also addressed in this book. Galton Darwin offers up a scientific solution. With the knowledge of the various sexual hormones, it might also become possible to free the majority of mankind from the urgency of sexual impulse so that they could live contented, celibate lives. He goes on and on about how the struggle for survival will cause global conflict and that eugenics operations will be a necessity to control population growth. He applauds China for its long history of civil services, which predate those of Europe by millennia. China is described as the model type of civilization for a world which will ultimately be unified through technology. Galton Darwin has a fascination with insects, stating that humans should resemble workers in an anthill. He goes on to say, There might be a drug which, without other harmful effects, removed the urgency of sexual desire, and so reproduced in humanity the status of workers in a beehive. It is this human beehive which has been the ideal society in the eyes of elites for a very long time. This will be the template for post-humanity, the ultimate slave race, scientifically designed to never rebel. The transhumanists have a popular term hive mind, which refers to the giant collective intelligence which will be created when people the world over link their brains together with technology. Their general belief is that this new experience will be wonderful, creating a whole new superintelligence through symbiotic existence. In reality, the hive mind will be Galton Darwin's beehive, the creation of the new man which has been written about for many years. scientific method. We know that there has been uh, uh, experiments done as far back as the 1920s and 30s uh, of trying to crossbreed animals with humans. The Germans were doing that. 
all the main eugenicists, Margaret Sanger, H.G. Wells, the princes, Prince Bernhardt, said they're going to make two different species. And then BBC, while I was making the film, showed this little goblin creature that that, that we're going to be. And then they're going to be these beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. And, And they hate us so much, they want to make themselves better than us. So they actively want to kill most of us and then have a clown goblin creature that they call the old humans that they laugh at. That's exactly right. We know the GMO food's changing our genetics. We know we're genetically getting dumber, not just chemically. Go ahead. This is massive, folks. That's right. That's what I've been looking at for 48 years, the the complete transformation and transmutation of the human spirit into a whole new kind of creature. Transhumanism fills people's minds with hopes and dreams of becoming superhuman. But the fact of the matter is that the true goal is the removal of that pesky human sexual urge and ultimately of free will itself. Post-humanity will be a new human which has been genetically engineered and brain chipped for total control. Part man and part machine, the new man will no longer be in need of his sexual reproductive function. I understand that this is not what the average transhumanist wants to hear, but we must realize that such a bizarre and horrific future is not only possible, it is intended. Although we won't arrive at this point overnight, first we must step into the world of virtual reality where our identity as purely human will blend with that of our new virtual persona. In virtual reality, you can be someone else. You don't have to be the same boring person all the time. I mean, you all have these personalities inside you that don't quite fit with your bodies in real reality. So basically, most people just, like, kill them all off. Some people don't actually keep any of their personalities, which reminds me of some of my old boyfriends, but that's another story. And you read the eugenicists, read the government plans, they are now doing it, inserting us into a matrix, you're being sucked into your iPhone, sucked into your video games, you're already interfacing. By 2020, there'll be an entire three-dimensional universe in cyberspace, with virtual countries and governments, virtual schools and universities, virtual property and stock markets, and virtual families and friends. Virtual reality is going to become more and more like real reality, but have the advantage that I can share a virtual reality environment with someone else, even if they're hundreds of miles apart, and we can be in the same environment, and we can be other people, and we can change environments quickly, and it has a lot of advantages of real reality. I think in 10 years, things like Second Life will, will become as prevalent as email is now. And I think virtual worlds will, will become a similar way for people to get together, communicate, collaborate. I can see in the future that it's going to be so much more capable than it is today, and I'm going to love it. If a machine is passing down signals that keep you completely happy, then why not be part of the Matrix? I I really do think uh, Neo in the Matrix trying to destroy things, he's a bit of a party pooper. Um, Life for humans in a Matrix could be really cool.
To give skeptics the benefit of the doubt, perhaps this version of post-humanity is pure speculation. However, converging technology does present the need for radical change within society, no matter how it is applied. This point is made over and over again in the National Science Foundation 2001 report. The age of transitions refers to the fact that global society will be in flux during a time of massive changes. Making this point clear, the report goes on to explain the need for socio-tech, which is the predictive science of societal behavior. The multiple drivers of human behavior have long been known. Now, through the decoding of complex systems, a completely predictable and managed society can be realized. To use the tremendous computing power we now have to integrate data across these fields, to create new models and hence new understanding of the behavior of individuals, the ultimate goal is acquiring the ability to predict the behavior of an individual and, by extension, of groups. Using tools and approaches provided by science and technology will raise our ability to predict behaviors. It will allow us to interdict undesirable behaviors before they cause significant harm to others and to support and encourage behaviors leading to greater social goods. The enforcement of pre-crime, as in the film Minority Report, is their stated goal. The planning of this Orwellian system has even spawned a whole new science, memetics, which is the study of memes. A meme is any idea which passes from one person to others, eventually becoming a norm throughout society. Memetics would allow a deeper understanding of the collective cognitive processes throughout society. The applications are, of course, oriented toward social Darwinism. Memetics is founded on the principle of universal Darwinism. Darwin has this amazing idea. Indeed, some people say it's the best idea anybody ever had. Because the idea was so simple, and yet it explains all design in the universe. All, all, all design in the universe. Certain ideas may have the force of a social virus. We can't let any social viruses bring down the species now, can we? Prior efforts to Darwinize culture have a long and ignoble history. What is new that might allow progress this time around? Not surprisingly, the report also gives a visionary solution to the war on terror. Sociotech can help us win the war on terrorism. It can help us to understand the motivations of the terrorists and so eliminate them. At this point, it's important to understand the legal definition of the term terrorist. Since 9-11, a mountain of legislation has been passed, including the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the John Warner Defense Act, and countless others, all of which have, through their legislative cunning, rendered the term terrorist so ambiguous that you can be deemed a terrorist for any reason at all. You can be taken to a secret prison without charges, without habeas corpus, and with no rights whatsoever. These laws were not written on a whim. 
They were specifically designed to give the government carte blanche authority over the people during the chaos and confusion of the age of transition. And so this transition is perhaps the most important transition of all time. Some people don't want it. They fear this transition because this transition is to a planetary civilization tolerant of many cultures. These are the terrorists. gut. They fear this because they know they are witnessing the birth pangs of the beginning of a new planetary civilization and the terrorists want nothing to do with it. that as global interdependence increases, every aspect of human life will change. Climate change, competition for resources, shortages of food and water, and the constant threat of pandemics will keep people in a worldwide state of shock. As the middle class in the West declines, extremist politics will be embraced by some out of desperation. Flash mobs will threaten military forces, which admittedly will be working alongside police. As America and Europe decline in power, China and India are expected to gain prominence on the global stage. The population of the West will decrease due to declining fertility. The report mentions this declining fertility on three separate occasions, but interestingly, never explains the cause of this problem. Amid all this crisis, technological breakthroughs will develop at an unprecedented rate. Human-computer interfaces will stimulate cultural change. By 2035, an implantable information chip could be developed and wired directly to the user's brain. Synthetic sensory perception beamed direct to the user's senses. It is likely that the majority of the global population will find it difficult to turn the outside world off. ICT is likely to be so pervasive that people are permanently connected to a network or two-way data stream with inherent challenges to civil liberties. Being disconnected could be considered suspicious. Disconnecting from the hive mind will get the military police at your door in no time. Presumably at this point, they will be super soldiers. So if you're lucky, they'll drag you off to a forced labor camp as opposed to simply just bashing your brains in. What kind of class structure will exist in this nightmare world? A small, super rich elite and a substantial underclass of slum and subsistence dwellers. Where are those techno-progressives when you need them? 
A more permissive R&D environment could accelerate the decline of ethical constraints and restraints. The speed of technological and cultural change could overwhelm society's ability to absorb the ethical implications. The nearest approximation to an ethical framework could become a form of secular utilitarianism in an otherwise amoral scientific culture. The ultimate form of social Darwinism will be welcomed at long last. Galden's religion will reign supreme as the younger generations make eugenics a normal part of their life. Declining youth populations in Western societies could become increasingly dissatisfied with their economically burdensome baby boomer elders. This could lead to a civic renaissance with strict penalties for those failing to fulfill their social obligations. It might also open the way to policies which permit euthanasia as a means to reduce the burden of care for the elderly. Julian Huxley couldn't have said it better himself, but let's not forget Julian's brother, Aldous Huxley, author of Doors of Perception and A Brave New World. In 1962, he gave a lecture at the UC Berkeley in which he clearly laid out the vision of this planned future society. In the past, we can say that uh, all revolutions have essentially aimed at changing uh, the environment in order to change the individual. Today, uh, we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where a man can act directly on the mind body of his fellows. The nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, this is the, seems to me the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution, shall we say. First of all, to standardize the population, to iron out uh, inconvenient human dis uh, uh, differences, uh, to create, uh, so to say, mass-produced uh, models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system. A number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true, not through terror but through making life seem much more enjoyable than it normally does. Uh, enjoyable to the point where, as I said before, uh, human beings uh, come to love a state of things which by any reasonable and decent human standard they ought not to love. And this, I think, is perfectly possible. One of the more recent uh, developments in the sphere of, uh, of neurology, the, uh, the implantation of uh, electrodes in the brain, uh, this, of course, has been done on a large scale. Uh, the behavior of rats with electrodes planted in different centers. Technique was that they had a bar which they pressed and which um, stimulated this pleasure center, which was evidently absolutely ecstatic, because these rats were, were pressing the bar 18,000 times a day. 
apparently if you kept them from pressing the bar for a day, they would press the bar 36,000 times on the following day and would fall till they fell down in complete exhaustion. <laughs> And they would neither eat nor be interested in the, uh, the opposite sex and would just go on pressing the bar. In the cases, a few cases in which this has been done with very sick human beings, uh, the effects are evidently very remarkable. These people were suffering from the, uh, the uncontrollable depression. And they were, they'd had uh, the electrodes inserted into something resembling evidently the pleasure center of the rat. When they felt too bad, they just pressed a button and the battery in their pocket. And he said the result was fantastic. The sort of things that might happen. I mean, what might happen if, uh, if these fantastically powerful techniques uh, were used by unscrupulous uh, people in authority? What on earth would, would happen? What, what sort of society would we get? Mind control is the most important issue facing humanity today. All other issues, causes, choices, and electives are contingent upon our free thought. We all formulate our, our thoughts and our actions based on what we know. And we need to know that that knowledge base has been altered. It's been deliberately suppressed for decades. I've come a long way from the kind of robotic mind control that I experienced. And even though my experience is extreme and, and pretty horrific in, in many regards, the fact remains that mind control is a sliding scale. And we all experience some form of mind control or another, whether it's information control that's absolutely controlling our perceptions, our abilities to respond, allowing for that superstition to creep in. And superstition so often renders us totally helpless to affect a situation. The basic problem is that we are living in a virtual reality. We're living in a totally controlled environment, an environment that has been, been created by mass media. Now, many people, especially young people, accept unquestioningly the reality that is presented by the media. Popular culture, movies, television, music carry messages about how society works and how people should behave. And so entertainment is not value-free. It has ideological content. It presents a worldview that influences the people who watch the programming. There is a reason why television networks and, and the music industry, the various companies, they have programming departments. The programming that we are constantly assaulted by throughout our lives conditions us. It programs us to a particular worldview. Take a look at some of the most popular television programs in our culture. American Idol, Survivor, Game Shows. All of these are designed to reinforce the social Darwinian concept of competition. In order to survive, you must outdo your competitors. 
This is a recurrent theme in our society. We have all been propagandized to have low self-esteem. The only way to feel good about yourself is to succeed. Success involves acquiring anything that is bigger and better. If you have to be disingenuous or downright conniving, that's okay, as long as you end up winning. We are expected to take this as a law of nature. After all, it's survival of the fittest. This is the way that species evolve. You don't want to hold humanity back now, do you? Think of the mass media that preys on our insecurities. Fitness magazines, fashion, obsession with celebrity, youth, wealth, and beauty. We are obsessed with youth and enhancement. And now, the ultimate form of enhancement is at our fingertips. Transhumanism offers the ultimate form of bettering yourself. You want to be young? How's eternal life sound? You want to be strong? Why not add some machine parts to your pathetic body? You want to be smart? Here, put this computer chip in your head and become omnipotent. If you think that transhumanism is being introduced into such a fiercely competitive world by chance, think again. We have all been trained like Pavlovian dogs with a non-stop barrage of propaganda. If we don't own up to this reality, then we will all be outdone by our superiors, those people who have always believed themselves to be the pinnacle of human greatness. This is a top-down system created from the top to benefit a very few at the top. We are at the bottom. But if we all wake up and realize that this is not our system, then it can be changed. If you read the, the books by Plato, uh, he, he being an aristocrat of his day and studying in Egypt, he believed this himself and he, he wrote about it in his books. Oh, Plato? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, and so, so the... Um the inferior ones like us, we we don't uh, we don't have souls. Oh, well, you have a soul. In ancient times, and this was even taught in the early Christian church, you had body, soul, and spirit. And if you had all three, that was completion. That was the ultimate trinity. Uh, but they claimed that the people at the bottom never achieved or acquired spirit, so they were just soul. The soul had no intellect of its own, and you just went back into the big sea of pea soup. And uh, got mushed up. Ah, yeah. I see. Oh, that's that's uh, oh, that's pretty wild. And that's what Plato attributed their superior intellect and knowledge, uh, and, and for the very fact they were aristocratic and successful, that's what he attributed that to. Was that they came from these lineages that had uh, spirit. So they so they go on and evolve, but the rest of us go back into the primordial soup. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's wow, that's pretty wild. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, thanks, Alan. Thanks for calling. Life extension, singularity, and the promise of a golden age. Are we to believe in such a thing? Or are we being led down a primrose path, the proverbial road to hell? Post human a word not to be taken lightly, as it implies the end of the human race. Who has the authority to make such a decision? Only a god, or a power which believes itself to be a god, can take such action.
I realize that many of you watching this have become hardened, jaded, and cynical in life. You may even believe that the human race doesn't deserve to live on, or at least that's what you think you believe. Now is the time to face that phantom in the mirror in order to find out what truly exists within the innermost core of your being. I sincerely hope you will understand that life is sacred, free will is a gift, and humanity is worth saving.
and your family survive a food shortage lasting two weeks, six months, or maybe longer? Sound far-fetched? We live in precarious times. There is an ever-increasing possibility of food shortages caused by terrorist attacks, natural disasters, truck strikes, or monetary collapse. You owe it to yourself and family to prepare, and you can by getting a supply of our long-storing, freeze-dried, and dehydrated foods. Our foods are time-tested to store for decades, require a minimum of time and energy to prepare while maintaining superior nutritional value, freshness, and taste. Our foods were designed for the space program and are in constant use today by our own nuclear submarine service. Contact the Freeze Dry Guy today at Freeze Dry Guy at Lancet.com. That's Freeze Dry Guy at L A N S E T.com or call 530-265-8333. 530-265-8333. And let them know you heard it on American Boys Radio. suggest to people that their money should be gold or silver coin, as it says in the Constitution, they sometimes stare at you with a blank expression or make the most extraordinary comments. Do you feel that our paper currency should still be backed by gold or silver? Uh, I think there should be a backing for currency. Otherwise, there's a temptation to run it out and uh, make too much of it. I'm not really sure what you mean. Um, like change the color of our money or something? Or I buy silver. Gold. I don't know a lot about this subject, but I would say be just because of counterfeit. I think it should, but unfortunately it isn't. Okay, why do you think it should? I don't think the current system uh, is stable. These statements by everyday American citizens show how little people understand the intentions of the Founding Fathers. As the Constitution itself says, it is the supreme law of the land. And therefore the Constitution ranks ahead of any statutes of Congress, any statutes or constitutions for that matter of the states, and decisions of the courts. And any law or decision of the courts that is inconsistent with it is to that extent void. It's not a law at all. So what's going on here? Why does the Constitution clearly state that our money shall be coin, yet we are using government-issued, supposedly official, paper dollar bills? And we can't even redeem these for silver any longer. 
And why does Thomas Jefferson, the very man who drafted the Declaration of Independence and co-authored the U.S. Constitution, warn us about banks and corporations? Something is off here. The Federal Reserve System, to most people, seems like it is an agency of the federal government. That's what I thought it was when I first started to research this topic. But it turns out that it's nothing of the kind. The Federal Reserve is a hybrid organization. It's a partnership between the federal government and the private banks. When you look at it deeper than that, its essence is neither as a government agency or a private company. In reality, it is a cartel. In other words, it's no different in essence than a banana cartel or a sugar cartel or an oil cartel. It's a grouping of the large private corporations in the field, banking, who have come together to create agreement between themselves to limit competition, to preserve their profits, and to make sure that no newcomers come in and uh, take away their position. That's what cartels are always designed to do. And it's a shocking thing to realize that something as prestigious as the Federal Reserve System, at its core, is nothing more or less than a banking cartel with exactly those same objectives. The motivation for Congress to go into partnership with the elite bankers who formed the Federal Reserve is clear. Endless amounts of money could effectively be printed up and lent to Congress. Thus, individual congressmen would no longer be forced to depend on raising taxes to generate additional revenue, an unpopular action that can cost them re-election. Ironically, if there were no Federal Reserve, there may have been no need for an income tax. The country did fine without it for 137 years. The income tax amendment was introduced the same year the Federal Reserve System was formed, 1913. Coincidence? Prior to the formation of the Federal Reserve System, the country never did better. In fact, that was the problem, at least for the major banks. Capital formation, also known as savings, was happening all over America. Other than panics, many of which were caused by unethical lending practices, America was doing great. So much so, the big New York banks were losing business. But why isn't the mainstream media telling us this story? What would motivate them to refrain from a critical interpretation of banking history and the Federal Reserve System, especially today, when they broadcast critical, even intimate reports on every other aspect of life? I consider the Federal Reserve Act and the creation of the Federal Reserve as being unconstitutional. It gave uh, the government then uh, the power to create legal tender out of thin air, that is to create paper money, and although they didn't do that overnight, between 1913 and 1971, that is exactly what happened. But the notion of a central bank uh, does not uh, fit into the Constitution. Uh, the Congress has the authority to coin money, and only gold and silver should be legal tender. And uh, this is an absolute contradiction of the Constitution to have a Federal Reserve system and a central bank. 
not a lot of American people understand it, and I would add that probably not too many people here in the Congress understand it either. I think they see it as a convenience, and I think a lot of other people see it as a convenience because they think they're protected by the type of system that we have. But a fiat monetary system or a paper money system is merely a system where the government has this power and authority to dictate and insist that a piece of paper is legal tender. And even members of the banking committee have come up to me and they say, you mean our dollar isn't backed by gold anymore? Uh, not realizing that the Federal Reserve really accommodates big government uh, bureaucrats and politicians. There's another major problem with the system in that the system is a cartel structure, which means that they've taken all the banks in the country and put them into one economic unit that's essentially regulated from the top by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Comes 1932-33, had the crash. Uh, the Roosevelt administration came in, and one of the first important pieces of legislation that was passed was the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933. And the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933 did for all industries in the economy the same thing that the Federal Reserve System did for the banks in 1913. It created a cartel structure. All the steel producers were in one group, Poultry people were another group, mining people were another group, and on top of this whole thing was something that looked like the Board of Governors called the National Recovery Administration. The National Industrial Recovery Act was challenged as to its constitutionality, and a case went to the Supreme Court, 1935, the Schechter Poultry case. And the Supreme Court unanimously declared it unconstitutional. They said this kind of delegation of power by Congress to private parties is, and this is an exact quote, unknown to our law, unquote. You couldn't find it anywhere, by any method of interpretation, simply unknown. Well, the difference between the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Federal Reserve Act is essentially zero. The peculiarity here is that the Federal Reserve Act has never gotten that question to the Supreme Court. Let's take a second look at the words of Thomas Jefferson. A deeper look at exactly who owns and operates the private banks known as the Federal Reserve System and what their mission statement might be. The banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all their prosperity. Interesting that Jefferson not only mentions the banks that will grow up, but the corporations as well. Bear in mind that each one of the Federal Reserve Banks is basically a private corporation. Neither you and I, the people, nor the federal government for that matter, own these corporations, these so-called banks. They are owned by other corporations, known as member banks. The Fed was formed not in Washington, D.C., not in the halls of Congress or some meeting room, but it was formed on a private island off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island. This island in those days was a club they called the Jekyll Island Club. And its members were a relatively small group of billionaires from New York. People like J.P. Morgan and William Rockefeller and their business associates. When they went to the island, they all traveled aboard the private railroad car of Senator Nelson Aldrich. This was November of 1910, and he and six other men were told they mustn't be seen together. 
They couldn't dine together on that evening, and they must avoid newspaper reporters at all costs. One of them carried a shotgun. Just in case he had been confronted by a reporter, he was prepared to tell them that he was going on a duck hunting trip. When they got on board this railroad car, they were told not to address each other by last names, first names only. And two of them even went further and they adopted code names. They were concerned that the identities of all of these seven men might be known to the servants on board the car and that the servants might talk about it. And in that fashion, the word would get out even when they got to the island and went to the clubhouse, they had replaced all of the normal servants with new servants who didn't know any of these people. And they created the Federal Reserve under those kinds of conditions of great secrecy. I can assure you that very few wars of history have ever been plotted under conditions of greater secrecy than that. According to accidental releases of Fed stockholder information, as of 11.05 a.m. Tuesday, July 26, 1983, five member banks own 53% of the stock in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the most major of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks around the country. This is a controlling interest in the controlling bank. The major stockholders of this major bank, however, are confidential. No one, not even the government or the President of the United States, knows who they are, nor can they find out. We all began to lose track of this ownership on Tuesday, the 26th of July, 1983. Only a small group of elite insiders knows who these owners or controlling agents are in present time. Does this sound like a Thomas Jefferson operation? Does this so-called Federal Reserve System sound like something Ben Franklin, the man who invented the pot-bellied stove and co-authored the Constitution, would set up? Or does this system sound more like something George Orwell would write about in his nightmare book, 1984. Again, G. Edward Griffin. In those days, there was a great deal of concern among the American people about the concentration of financial power in the hands of a few uh, very wealthy and um, powerful financial interests in Wall Street. Um, they called this the money trust. And uh, the cry in those days was to break the grip of the money trust. And one of the primary purposes of the Federal Reserve Act, as it was promoted to the American people, was just that, to break the grip of the money trust. They were going to write a law that was going to take the power away from these people and put it in the hands of their trustworthy politicians, you see. Put it in the hands of the people through the electoral process. That was the propaganda behind the Federal Reserve System. So what's the purpose of the secrecy? It's because when you look at the list of these people who went, they were the money trust. They were the representatives of the banks, of J.P. Morgan, the Rockefellers. They represented Kuhn Loeb and Company, Warburgs in Germany and the Netherlands, and the Rothschilds in England. This was the money trust, not only of the United States, but of the world, 
had that fact been known, who these people were that were drafting the Federal Reserve System, the, the trick would have been exposed and the public never would have adopted the Federal Reserve Act as in fact they did. When you think about the significance of the Federal Reserve Act being passed under those conditions, the American people didn't know, but it was banking interests that were behind it. Powerful banking interests because they wanted their assets protected. They wanted the Federal Reserve to be the lender of last resort. So if they had been loaning out and risking the money, and these loans go bad, instead of having the market take care of this, they wanted bailout. And this is why it was a tremendous popular thing to do for the banks and, of course, the big business people who were borrowing the money. So it was very, very special interest directed, and it was, it was designed for the elite. And even today, a lot of people don't quite understand that. So it's an educational job as well outside of Washington, but hopefully someday people here in Washington, especially the members of the banking committee, will gain some interest in this subject because ultimately we will have to address it. Where does Congress get most of its funding? I would like to say from us, but I'm sure they have uh, foreign investors that they also get their money from us. Okay. Taxes. People. Government. Um, it gets it out of federal taxation, of course from taxes, but if you mean today, a great deal we're getting from China buying treasury bills. They print it. And can you elaborate on that? They have no funding. They have no money. It's all puff and mirrors. They have no money. It's all an illusion. There's, there's not much in back of it. As we can see, the average American citizen has conflicting ideas as to where Congress gets its funding. In actuality, Congress gets most of it by borrowing it from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve gets the so-called money by effectively printing it up. The whole process is known as the Mandrake Mechanism. Thus, today's paper currency, far from the gold and silver coinage stipulated by the founders, is essentially created out of thin air. Most people are alarmed when they hear about the fact that the Fed can create money out of nothing and charge interest on it, so-called interest. It starts with Congress. Remember a moment ago I said that the Federal Reserve System was a partnership between a cartel and the federal government. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, we go vote, and uh, we want to thank you for being here with us uh, for today. And, well, if uh, there's a partnership, thank you also for there's a reason for the partners, both of them, to be in it, or they wouldn't. More be. than a pleasure. So, why is the banking fraternity in this partnership, and why are the politicians in it? Congress needs more money. They always need more money. They uh, they like to spend money. That gets them elected. Uh, they don't like to raise taxes because that gets them unelected. The answer, of course, is that they borrow it. If you're not going to tax it from somebody, you can borrow it from somebody else. And that's why we have uh, government bonds and treasury notes and bills and so forth. And we have what's called the national debt because they've borrowed money to pay for current expenses that they don't want to pay for through taxes because that would be unpopular. So 30 days after they borrowed a billion dollars or 60 days, whatever the term of the loan is, they have to pay that money back. Well, lo and behold, it turns out that the congressmen and the senators are still not taking in as much money in taxes as they are spending in benefits. So they don't have the money to repay the loan. So what do they do? Easy. Borrow some more.
borrow enough to pay back the original loan, plus a little bit more to keep them in office. So this process goes on and on and on, and that's why we have the national debt growing and growing and growing. The Federal Reserve enters the picture at this stage because, you see, they can never borrow enough from the private sector. There's never enough existing money out there for the politicians to borrow. So what do they do? They go to the Federal Reserve System and by agreement, remember this is their partner now, the Federal Reserve System agrees literally to create the money that they're going to lend to the government. It's not really a lending at all, as you can see, but they, they use the old traditional words of lending it to the government, when in fact all they're doing is just printing it for the government. They're creating it for the government, and then they call it a loan. Of course, they don't print it all because most of it's checkbook money, but nevertheless, the process is the same as if they had just turned on the printing presses and printed all this money and gave it to the federal government. So now, once the Federal Reserve System creates this money, out of nothing, literally. It's fresh money into the society, into the economy, and that's how the money supply keeps growing and growing and growing. What about the banking partner? What's in it for them? I come in and I give the banks a hundred ounces of gold, and the bank offers me some interest payment on that. They're going to pay me 3% interest. And they're going to take that hundred ounces of gold and they're going to lend it out that's how they make their money, the 2% spread. Okay? Now that's fine so far because I know that gold is in there, it's being loaned out, and someday now I'm getting 2% interest and someday I can ask for that principal back. It might be six months, it might be a year, whatever it is. Where the trick comes into this is the bank says, not only are we going to lend that money out, but we're going to allow you, Mr. Depositor, to draw on that money right now. All right? which means that they can't possibly be saying that I can draw 100% of that deposit when they've also loaned out 100% of that deposit. Now, maybe they don't loan out 100%, maybe they don't loan out 90% or 80% or whatever it is. And that's the fractional reserve concept. They don't have enough reserves to pay out all of these obligations that they've made, especially with respect to paper currency, because usually that's the way it worked. Now, why do they do this? Well, they do this because they make money. Right. If I can loan out essentially more than I have in my reserves, by that difference I'm increasing interest payments. So the bankers are beneficiaries of this, and obviously the early, the first lender, the person that receives that money is a beneficiary because he's getting money he wouldn't have gotten otherwise, even though he has to pay interest on it. But then what happens down the line? This is the fascinating part about it. The market has set prices and wages on the basis of what it believes is the total amount of money that's in circulation. Along come the banks and they start generating new money that the market doesn't know about. It finds out about it because the money goes into circulation. So I'm the first user of this money. I've just received the loan from the bank. I'm going to go out and buy cement with it. And when I buy cement with it, cement is at the original market price. Now as that money starts percolating into society, the market realizes there's more money than there was before. More money chasing the same amount of goods means the prices of goods go up, right? So eventually, somewhere down the line, that same cement that I just bought for $5 a pound is going to cost someone else $6 a pound. Now, if he buys that cement at $6 a pound before his income has increased commensurately, what's happening to his real wealth? 
he's losing real wealth, right? His costs have gone up, his income stays the same, his real wealth is decreased. Whose real wealth has increased in this transaction? Mine and the bank's, because we got the full value of the money right at the beginning. So this system transfers wealth somehow. You can't exactly follow it. But the principle is there. It transfers wealth from society to the creators of money. For every billion dollars that's put into the banks, I, as a commercial banker, can create an additional $9 billion and push them out into the economy as loans. Now that $9 billion, based on the $1 billion, which itself was created out of nothing, all of it is just fiat money. It's created out of nothing, but the commercial banks get the bigger end of the deal, as you can see. They can create nine for the private sector called loans, and these are genuine loans. And that is where our money comes from. That is how money is created. Every bit of it is created in this fashion. Every bit of it is based upon debt, and that debt creates money that literally has nothing behind it at all. Now this is how money is created in the Western world. And it's an amazing story. Only a very few people at the top know how money really comes into existence. Best estimates say that a network of about 7,000 people, mostly located in large urban areas worldwide, facilitate the acquisition and control of the voting stock of these banks by proxy. The marching orders as to where literally hundreds of trillions of dollars of monetary power will be directed are believed to be given by the 7,000 on instructions from an insider control group we estimate to number about 300. Of the 300, many are related to one another by blood, marriage, and business ties. And, it would seem, have family ties to the original robber barons of the Industrial Revolution at the turn of the 19th century. More importantly, however, most of the 7,000 involved in this group may be largely unaware of their negative effects on society. They may sincerely, but naively, believe they are simply doing good. Nevertheless, now talking about the 300 who form the inner controlling body, we estimate that about 50 of this group are anything but naive. Thus, having successfully established the ultimate money-making machine, the Federal Reserve System, this nefarious cartel of tyrants is in a position to literally acquire control over the assets of the world, deprive the people of all their prosperity, as Thomas Jefferson would say. This is the calculus of the situation, and this is exactly what they are doing, with a little help from their virtuous but ignorant servants in Congress, as John Adams might say. Yes, the Founding Fathers must surely be rolling over in their graves. The original intent of the Constitution is spelled out quite clearly not only in the document, but in the immediate history that surrounds its formation. Now, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 limits the powers of the states. It says, no state shall coin money. States had coined money. Stops them from doing it. No state shall emit bills of credit. Now, that's one of those peculiar words. If you were living in that time, you knew what it meant. It meant, essentially, what we call paper money. No state shall 
emit bills of credit, which means that a state itself cannot create paper money, and then it can't do it indirectly by setting up some kind of a bank that's controlled by the state. Third provision in that clause is, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. And notice the language, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin, meaning states can and should make gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. But the historical background shows absolutely clearly that paper money was not going to be allowed at the national level or the state level. And the very interesting point here is that the same people who wrote the Constitution had been to a large extent in control of the states and of the Congress under the Articles of Confederation during the War of Independence. These people had emitted large amounts of paper money. The states did it. Congress did it. That Congress was called continental currency. And most people are familiar with the phrase, not worth a continental. Paper money depreciated so radically in value that it was essentially worthless. Those same people looked back at what they had done only a few years earlier and said, we're not going to do this anymore. The inflation isn't rising prices. The inflation is the government's program of increasing the supply of money, which devalues the currency, and that causes the prices to go up. Inflation, that is the destruction of money, eventually wipes out the middle class. The best example in the 20th century being uh, what we saw uh, happen in Germany. As the runaway inflation came, the middle class got wiped out. In the early stages, of course, somebody benefited. Uh, eventually it hurts everybody. But in this country right now, we have constant uh, insidious inflation. So there is a transfer of wealth from the poor and the middle class to the wealthy. But because it affects the business cycle and causes prices to go up in general, who suffers the most? The people who can afford it the least, that people on fixed incomes, low middle income people, poor people. I think it especially hits hard low middle income people who are trying to make it on their own and won't go on the dole because their prices go up more and they're the first ones to lose their job. When the business cycle turns down, the Federal Reserve, by increasing the credit, creates the boom part of the cycle, but then there's always the resulting downturn of the cycle when unemployment rises. We're always live. It's almost impossible to believe that the all-powerful dominant media, what Bill O'Reilly calls the elite media, would endlessly cover all these issues, yet be silent on the very subject that is common to all of them money and the entity that creates and manages the so-called money supply, the Federal Reserve System. Why is this? One can never watch enough television. <laughs> there has been a tremendous concentration of the mass media over the last 50 years, from over 100 companies to six companies. Back in the 1934 Communications Act, each media company was only allowed to own a handful of stations, and they weren't allowed to have cross-ownership. They couldn't allow own all the media in your town. Now they can own more and more because congressmen who've gotten elected as a result of the mass media have given them more and more. That means very few people have the right to speak to us over television, over radio, through the New York Times, the LA Times, the different news media. The whole purpose of the First Amendment is to guarantee that we have more, not less speech. However, when you start to get down and say only a few people can put up their soapbox, only a few people can address the audience, suddenly you've limited the amount of speech. Now that's 
the government control of speech. On the other hand, when those few people recognize that the government is the one that's licensed them to speak, they start to act in a way that's not going to jeopardize that relationship. Could this be one of the reasons any critical reporting of universally important issues, such as the Federal Reserve, have been cut out of the public debate for so long? As Ted Turner relates in his article, My Beef with Big Media? Why would major media corporations, corporations that control the information flow to 95% of the American citizens, fail to report on the detrimental activities of the Federal Reserve System? A government-sanctioned, quasi-private banking cartel that literally controls 100% of the money flow to the same citizens, as well as the lion's share of the money flow to Congress itself. The amount of money it costs today to run for Congress or even to run for president is obscene. And most of that money goes into television commercials and spots and all of the mass media advertising that needs to be done to reach the 295 million Americans, a vast number of people. And when that person wins, if the media has supported him, naturally he wants to pay them back. He may not think of that consciously, but in appropriating licenses and expanding territories and allowing them to own one more than one media outlet, that's exactly what happens. As a result, the number of media companies, as we said before, has concentrated in a few hands. And unfortunately, Congress and the media work together to present an image to the American people that does not always include every aspect of the truth. This reciprocity, this in cahoots process, has obscured many of the more important issues to the American people. And there's no more important issue than the issue of fiat money. When you give men the power to create money out of nothing, you shouldn't be surprised if they turn around and create money out of nothing, because that's what they're supposed to do. Now, the underlying philosophy is that, well, we'll be very conservative about it. We won't run rampant. We won't abuse this power, would we? So we give them blindly this power to create money out of nothing because we trust them to use this power wisely. Nowhere in history has this ever been a justified trust. Every time man has had that power, and this started back in antiquity, those with the power have abused it and they have created more and more and more money at a rate much faster than the expansion of goods and services which are being produced by the productive side of the economy. Now, if the goods and services were growing at a rate which is exactly the same as the money supply, then the purchasing power of the monetary unit would remain constant. In ancient Rome, if you had a one-ounce gold coin, that would be the cost of a nice toga, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals. Today, thousands of years later, if you have a one ounce gold coin and you convert that into Federal Reserve notes, you can walk into a store and buy a nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. The real price of those items, and all items for that matter, throughout history does not change when measured in terms of something of intrinsic value, such as gold or silver, because those things take human effort to produce as well as the, the belt, the toga, and the sandals. 
both of them take human effort to produce, and that's why they maintain uh, value with each other. But once you break that away, and you give men the power to, to expand the money supply without that discipline, they're going to expand the money supply faster than the increase in goods and services. And then you're going to have this uh, difference in purchasing power. We call it inflation. Well, it's always politically popular to impose financial burdens on somebody else. It tends to be politically difficult to impose financial burdens on someone who's living alongside of you because they tend to have votes and they tend to have representatives who will take their position. It's fairly easy to impose a financial burden on the future because the future generation tends not to have any votes or representation at all in the present. As soon as you start talking about monetization of debt, where the banks come in and now buy governmental debt with new money that the banks have created through this special privilege they have of creating money in, in the Federal Reserve System, the redistribution of wealth that takes place through that process, most people don't understand. It happens through depreciation of currency, and the depreciation of currency usually leads to increases in prices, which the average person calls inflation. Inflation is really the increase in the money supply. The prices increase is a consequence of that. But the average person doesn't understand how this happens. And he's going to blame gold speculators in Switzerland. He's going to blame greedy unions. He's going to blame uh, you know, price gouging. He's going to blame everybody but Congress and the banking system. So it's easy politically through monetization of debt to expand borrowing beyond prudent levels. Now, now, why is that tyrannous? Well, at a certain level, it's tyrannous. The definition of tyranny is the exercise of a power that no one should be allowed to exercise. Okay? And it's tyrannous because no one should be allowed to exercise a power that puts burdens on people that are not allowed an opportunity to be heard, an opportunity to vote, an opportunity to have some kind of a say. Right. Granted, to some extent, you're going to have to do that in the nature of government as long as you have borrowing, but beyond a certain point, it becomes tyrannous. And it's beyond that point that the present system allows our political structure to move too easily. How much, uh, take for instance, how much is the purchasing power of Federal Reserve notes lost since World War II? About 90%. You think that hasn't had some consequence in terms of redistribution of wealth, in terms of the way the economy has developed? Of course it has. The average person doesn't see, doesn't see it. He can't follow the lines of cause and effect, but it's there, and his life is quite a bit different from what it would have been if that hadn't occurred. Purchasing power, monetization of debt, inflation. What do we mean by all these terms? Terms we may have heard many times, but still fail to connect the dots. Are you confused? If so, you're not alone. Inflation, I think, is a bad word because really we think of inflation as rising prices. But in reality, what's happening, prices are not going up. It's that the value of the dollar or the monetary unit is going down. That's what's really happening if we understand the process. And it's a tax, therefore. Our lost purchasing power the, well, we have to pay more for a bag of groceries today than we did five years ago. Comes out of our pocket, comes out of our earning capacity. That is value which we should have, but it's been taken from us through a process that we call inflation, but in reality, it's a hidden tax. Inflation is the result of being able to create money out of nothing, and that is the power we have given to the Federal Reserve System.
Therefore, we can say that the, in, the Federal Reserve System is the agency of a hidden tax called inflation. Since the early 1900s, almost no one talks about the country's banking system anymore. What happened? There was shooting, then there was nothing. Yet our money, like water, is one of the most important commodities we have. More than that, the quality of our money affects the productivity of every man, woman, and company in America. As time goes on, people figure out better ways of doing things, better ways of making products, cheaper and faster. For instance, one farmer can now grow food for thousands of people, whereas he used to be able to feed only his family. Thus, everything should be getting cheaper, because the supply of everything has been growing faster than the demand. This is true even though the population has been growing as well. Unfortunately, this is not what we observe. With the exception of a few industries, like the computer industry, and products we import from places like China, it seems that almost everything is getting more expensive, but oftentimes cheaper in quantity. How can this be? Over the decades, the productive energy of society seems to be getting siphoned off. Well, that's, it's hard to predict, but I, I certainly think it's possible because I think the financial bubble worldwide is something that uh, we have never experienced before. Uh, we've had tastes of that, but Alan Greenspan, in one way, is a genius, and in another way, he is an unbelievable threat to us. He's a, a genius in the sense that, in, technic, in a technical fashion, he's been able to keep this system of inflation together longer than anybody else has been able to, especially in this last go-around from 2000 on. With the collapse of the Nasdaq bubble, we really didn't have much of a recession because he immediately uh, started inflating massively, taking interest rates down to 1%. And now, of course, he's a little bit frightened about the bubble, and he's curtailing credit to some degree. But uh, the dollar has become the gold of the world. The, uh, the uh, world central banks have accepted the dollar as if it were gold, Greenspan claims that they have gotten the paper money to act as if it is gold, which I strongly disagree with and all the hard money people disagree uh, with, but uh, I believe he's been capable of creating this huge financial bubble and the world has not yet uh, seen what may come of this, so I suspect that uh, depending on when it comes and what we do, it could very well end up into a much worse situation than the Great Depression. But if the country decided, well, something has to be done, and we went to a gold standard and limited the creation of credit, curtailed the power of the Fed, I think it would iron out all our difficulties. When Argentina periodically would just quit inflating and maybe tie their currency to the, even the dollar, price inflation went like from hundreds of percent per year down to 2% or 3%, so it's, it's rather rapid. So you would see an immediate benefit. You would iron out the severe swings in the business cycle, uh, the price problems would be diminished, but the one thing we'd have to give up, which to me would be a benefit, government would have to curtail spending because they can't tax the people enough to pay for all those bills. So we would have to curtail our spending. So that would be, to me, a tremendous boost to the American people and to the economy. At the same time, we gave sound money. I mean, this would be fantastic. Within months, 
there would be some people who would suffer from the adjustment period, but it might be the people who have benefited so much over these years. But the average person, the poor person, the jobs would become available. So it, it would not take a long, long time. What would take a long time is if we refuse to consider it and the problems get worse and we have a severe recession or depression and huge inflation and we do all the wrong things. That is what we should work so hard against. We must get rid of the fiat money system. How do you do that? Well, the first step, of course, the big step, the biggest imaginable step is for people to realize that they even have one. I mean, how many people walking up and down the streets that go into the, uh, the polls each year and elect their leaders, how many people know that we have a fiat money system? How are we going to change that unless we have an understanding, an educational foundation at the electoral level? So this is where we have to start. Because so many people in the U.S. are now semi-illiterate, thanks to the government-sponsored public school system, it may be possible to stimulate a discussion on the Federal Reserve only through films and TV shows. In many ways, film has replaced the written word for the masses. What is the Federal Reserve System? It's where they generate the money, and they keep the money, I think. <laughs> Federal Reserve System is a banking structure owned by the uh, the banks and run by the government. No, I don't. I don't know much okay. about. It. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's a system of balancing the flow of currency throughout the United States, so that as banks need to have liquidity, they have it, and as they need to tighten up money, they tighten it up. Similar to what you had said earlier about having the reserves for when we go in a crisis or something and you need to have that actual backing, not just the dollar currency, because paper is paper, and if you don't have that gold or silver behind it, then it's just going to be paper. Uh, it was established in, uh, if, I, if I guessed, I'm not sure, 1913 perhaps, to establish st stability in the um, American financial system. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what is a system? It's a banking system that's uh, run by the government. Uh, a little, in, it's almost like a fourth branch, but it's run by the government, and it's uh, guaranteeing the, the uh, that banks will remain stable. And if they're not stable, they'll take it over. Um, a way of backing up the money. Uh, we, I don't know. Yeah. And what is the Federal Reserve System? Um, well, do you want Andrew Jackson's opinion of the Federal Reserve System or what? Your, your opinion. Uh, I liked his. It's a bunch of organized crooks. Wow. Now that citizen is informed. Too bad everyone is not as aware of how far we have strayed from our founding principles. Well, the major problem you have not only with the Federal Reserve System, but with any statutory structure that's unconstitutional is it doesn't square with the, what's called the Supremacy Clause. The Constitution, which has the Constitution and laws passed in pursuance thereof, that is, constitutional laws, are the supreme law of the land. So obviously you have a statute that doesn't square with the Constitution. It's void. It is not a law, in fact. So the question then arises, well, how does that square with the oath of office of representatives, senators, judges? And the answer is it doesn't that when they come face to face with a statute that is 
in contradiction of the Constitution, they are to treat the Constitution as the supreme law and treat that statute as void. So that's number one. Here we have a system, the Federal Reserve System, that has all of these constitutional problems and everyone is essentially looking in the opposite direction. So that doesn't square with the oath of office. And one would think that the president being the head of the executive department in which we find the Treasury, Department of Treasury, right, which interacts quite closely with the Federal Reserve, might have something direct to say about that. And then, of course, the president has a specific constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and the supreme law of the land is the Constitution. So you would expect, on top of all of this, that he would be saying, wait a minute, if the Constitution doesn't square with the Federal Reserve Act in one or more ways, then I should be giving directives to the Secretary of the Treasury to take certain kinds of action to deal with that. And, of course, we see exactly the opposite. We see the Federal Reserve people, usually the chairman of the Federal Reserve, comes to Congress, and he tells Congress directly, and usually tells the president at least indirectly, here's how monetary policy is going to be implemented. So the Federal Reserve is the tail that's wagging the dog when we have all of these questions that it may not be legitimate at all in whole or in part. If you want to see the way power goes in a system or the way the laws are corrupted, follow the money, and the Federal Reserve is a huge agency for the creation of money. If you study monetary history uh, throughout thousands of years, you will find out that paper money has been tried many, many times and it never succeeds. It always ends badly. The question is, is when will the dollar end badly? Will it be next year or in five years or ten years? I'm convinced it will end unless we do the right things and that is restore soundness to the money, re put restraints on our government, uh, either strictly uh, uh, curtail the power of the Fed or get rid of the Fed. Uh, that will be the only way you can save the dollar. But if we continue to do what we're doing now, we will eventually destroy the dollar. Throughout history, as governments grow, they limit the individual's rights. The same thing happened in the Roman Empire. We know this from history, but we also know it from Shakespeare's wonderful play, Julius Caesar. As we start moving toward a bigger and bigger government, it's going to mean that the individual no longer has the right to own his property, the right to do what he wants, the right to live freely, the right to worship as he wants, the right to speak as he wants. The government starts to tell us what to do. Most of the time they think they're telling us what to do in their best interest, but the trouble is that government, as Adam Smith pointed out, John Locke pointed out, as the great thinkers of all time have always pointed out, don't really know what's right to do. Government often makes the wrong choices because it doesn't understand the consequences of its actions. So even when it doesn't desire to be a nefarious force, to be a dark force, it often is. The problem that we have is the result of legislation. Congress has to make fundamental changes in the present system. I don't think that it's possible to impose from the top down even the constitutional system because no one out there now is used to using gold and silver as their money. So what needs to be done is to create a competitive system of currencies. Leave the Federal Reserve System there. Slowly, over six months or a year, take away some of its legal privileges, its legal tender privilege, its privilege is the only medium to pay government taxes, so forth and so on. And over on this side, create a gold and silver system. And then you will have competition between the two, the paper money price structure and the gold and silver price structure. And it will be a competition. What happens is in this competition, 
gold and silver would win out because in competition the free market usually wins out over governmental intervention and special privileges and that's the reason we have governmental intervention and special privileges to keep the free market from winning out and that's why they go to government to ask for legal privileges all right so that's the first problem now the second problem is i don't see that happening through congress because there are just too many loggerheads in congress to get the thing started so my suggestion is that it begin in some state a small state a state that probably has a certain amount of its taxes that it can hypothecate to gold and if the system worked and more and more people were asking then the state could expand the areas of taxation and bring more people into it and eventually you would if it worked you would see the whole state the state's monetary system the government state government would be on a gold system and then i would think as well you begin to see that spreading into the economy now if that were to happen then I think other states would look at this and say, well, that makes sense. Let's begin to move in that direction. You could look at it essentially as a monetary insurance policy. They don't have to go beyond 10%, but 10% gold holding is perfectly prudent. And if something were to happen in the economy, if there were to be a monetary crisis, banking crisis, then the state could rapidly expand the system because people would know how it operates. But the idea is to get the mechanism, as it were, on the table so that people can see how it works why it works, what its benefits are. They don't have to be afraid of it. And I, arguments along the lines of there's not enough gold and silver in the world to do this will, you know, that kind of thing will be uh, shown to be fallacious. Concerned citizens should be asking themselves questions like, why do you feel like you're on a treadmill that's constantly running faster? Hey. Why does it now take a two-income family to make ends meet, thus preempting women from their traditional role of providing stay-at-home childcare? Why do we see a never-ending expansion of government, even though our elected officials endlessly promise to reduce it? Where does the government get the funds to wage perpetual war, yet fails to provide the basic protection citizens needed on September 11th? Why do rich people seem to be getting richer, while you and all your friends seem to be hardly making ends meet? Why does a first-class stamp now cost you nearly 40 cents when it used to cost only 5 cents? Should a 90% loss of purchasing power be tolerated? Where does it end? It's easy to see where we're headed. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. If you follow a graph, and you can see that there are points on this graph and they're going constantly in one direction and they've been doing this for 50 years you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see where it's headed where this graph is headed is for total destruction of our monetary system our money will be totally worthless and it'll probably be reissued in the form of some international currency which will be equally worthless but the value to these people is that once it's on an international basis, there's nowhere else to go. Right now, if you, if you don't like American dollars, you can buy uh, Japanese yen. If you don't like that, you can buy uh, Swiss francs. If you don't like that, you can move to whatever currency seems to be having a little better track record. Once there's an international monetary system in place, modeled completely and exactly after the Federal Reserve System, is exactly the same, then there's no place else to go, folks. You've had it.
So that's where it's headed, and if we don't turn this thing around, I think we're going to be living in kind of a, uh, a modern serfdom. And we'll be serving masters, and they won't be living in the big castles uh, that we can see, at least, uh, and say, well, that's where the master lives up there, and we're tilling his field. Um, our masters will be the bankers and the politicians, and they'll live in big houses, but they won't be castles. But we'll be serving masters nevertheless, and we'll be thinking they're wonderful people without realizing that they are our masters. If the United States went back to constitutional money, it would be an amazingly wonderful event because it wouldn't be just going back to constitutional money. In order for that to happen, that means you'd have to assume a groundswell of awakening on the part of the electorate. And they would understand not only what's happening in the monetary system, but what's happening across the board in our political system. I think we would have a great resurgence of prosperity and tranquility. That means that the electorate would have to be questioning a lot of other things in our society as well. And I think we would see an improvement across the board, and I look forward to that day. Americans need to stay on top of one of their most influential institutions, the Federal Reserve System. They need to start asking questions, not only of their representatives, but of no less than the President of the United States, whose sworn duty is to uphold the law of the land, especially the supreme law of the land, the U.S. Constitution. commercial redemption or accepted for value, the Commerce Game Exposed is the book that will help you understand this process. The fact is, there is no lawful money in circulation. The explanation and details as to how this happened are enlightening, and the instructions concerning what one can do with this information are detailed and easy to understand. Utilizing this process is not for everyone, but learning how lawful money has been turned into commercial debt instruments should be of concern to everyone. The Commerce Game Exposed book is a good tool to learn the commercial nature of the new world order. To order the Commerce Game Exposed, go to www 
TheAmericanVoice.com or call 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Monday, June 1st, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Well, it was another typical Monday. Uh, you had the... What was that? That was just... Uh... <laughs> loud noise but uh maybe it was uh you know maybe it was those boys that are listening making that noise but we have gold today just no, down a few me. we have gold down just a few cents today at 119090 although we had a high of 1205 so uh, uh, uh you know big swing there in, in the gold market today it was up strong at the open and of course uh, just lost its gains throughout the day silver was the same thing 1680 Currently had a high of 17.24. Platinum was down six at 11.08. Palladium was down four at 7.76. The uh, USDX today up 0.57 at 97.45. Crude oil not a lot of change down 0.06 at 60.24. And the paper markets today. I know they're off their highs of the day. They were close to triple digits. Now we're looking up uh, 29 on the Dow at 18,040. The NASDAQ up 12, 5,082. 
The S&P up 4 at 2111, 10-year yield. That moved up 0.10 uh, for the 10-year yield at 2.19%. The euro is 109, up a little bit, and not a lot of action, either the foreign markets, the Asian or the European. So um seems it's the same type of Monday we have uh, every Monday. Every Monday, just huh? uh, I guess. Uh, and that means we can we could probably, you know, just start doing two five programs, Melody. <laughs> Record them and just do the same one. Do the Tuesday program and the Wednesday program. We could do them all the same. Well, now that wouldn't be fair to our listeners, now would it? They like that would be kind of fun. Yeah. Maybe we can run a contest. Can you tell if we're live or a replay based on current events? I can't tell. Hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you today, the U.S. manufacturing growth accelerated in May for the first time in six months. And, of course, this is to be propelled by new more orders. And an increase in hiring, the Institute for Supply Management uh, said that the manufacturing index rose to by 2.8, 52.8 from the 51.5 in April. This is the highest reading since February. Any reading above 50 is to signal expansion. And uh, it also su- suggests that perhaps the economy may be growing. <laughs> After shrinking for that first uh, three months of, of bad weather for 2015, but of course we still continue to see the the sharp rise in the dollar, which makes U.S. goods and uh, more expensive overseas, and of course it'll drag down our exports. And uh, so, other than that, not too much uh, going on. There's uh, of course the oil and gas industry that has still been hammered with the lower um, oil prices. And um, so that hasn't helped. They've dropped uh, buildings and equipment fell about 2.8% in the first quarter. And that was the biggest drop in more than five years for that industry. Uh, But you're beginning to see little signs that uh, maybe um, businesses are picking up a little bit and buying equipment and so forth, machinery and so forth. But uh, again, nothing, you know, to write home about and, uh, Certainly, it's the type of report that we continue to get. We're not sure whether to believe it, how much it's been, you know, spun into these great numbers. And uh, but uh, those are the numbers that were reported today. You know, you have a problem that is, to some degree, a function of the internet. We get new articles, you know, on a, on a moment-by-moment basis. They're constantly pouring in. And it reminds me that back in the day, your information came to you in a newspaper or a magazine. And you didn't have a continuous flow of new information that was pounding in, pounding in, pounding in. The same way we do right now. We have, but Norman Mailer described it as the media goat which means that he'll eat anything and just keep on chewing up tin cans and grass and, you know, garbage and whatever. He'll just eat anything. There is such a mass of information. And sometimes it's difficult. You know, are we talking about something that is 
just the news for 15 minutes, or are we talking about something that's news that really means something in terms of weeks or months or years? And it's it's, well, it's not something that's easy to get around, but nevertheless, it's the kind of question you sit back and, you know, the price big deal. The price has moved, you know, a fraction of a percent here, there, or whatever. That's the problem, that Al. These numbers... That means something, or is it just filler? No, these numbers were to mean something. These were, you know, indications of what our economy was doing. But when you have our economy and and the markets that are all based on the Federal Reserve, um, as far as the fundamentals for for any type of growth or strength, yeah, it's difficult to find. And uh, you still look to these numbers, and yes, they should mean something. Absolutely. And I don't think there's a... You know, people ask me all the time, and I mentioned this last week, well, who do you follow? I don't follow anyone. I look at these numbers. I look at these reports, and I compare them to other reports. Bob Chapman, look how much he didn't follow anybody's opinions and, and, you know, and so forth. He read the news. He read the reports. You put these reports together, and and like John Williams, he has important numbers that you follow. And uh, you can read the numbers that are produced by, you know, the government and so forth, but then there's always the you know, the truth behind them to which you can follow. So um, they, they should mean something now. Well, they um, should mean something, what I'm trying to get to. Does it mean something? It's like watching a I mean, I don't say I'm just to It's like watching a I get that, but what I'm trying to get to is this. It is, it's like watching a thermometer. Does it really matter if the temperature goes from 86 to 86.3? and then falls back to 86.2, and then drops down to 85.9. There's a point in time where the data keeps pouring in on a moment-by-moment basis, and you don't, it doesn't give you a perspective the same way if, it got, if you got your information. What happened last week? And what's, how's that compared to today? All right? It gives you a little more of a trend. It gives you a two dots that you can connect and you can derive something from. When you're connecting the dot between five minutes ago to five minutes from now, I'm not sure if that's, you know, it's it's one of the problems you have to deal with. People listening have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. Uh, it's, it's, It's a challenge to sort through all the information that's available and try to figure out what is just white noise and what actually has significance and meaningful application in each of our lives. That's what so I'm observing the problem, and I'm not suggesting that we have a, a remedy for that problem, but I'm just observing what strikes me at least as a you know, problem. Well, key parts of the uh, Patriot Act expired. Yep. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a good thing. Uh, All in all, it's a good thing, but it's kind of amazing in some regards. Got an article from the New York Times, and that's the headline, Key Parts of Patriot Act Expire Temporarily as Senate Moves Toward Limits on Spying. The government's authority to sweep up vast quantities of phone records in the hunt for terrorists expired at 12.01 a.m. Monday after Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, blocked an extension of the program during an extraordinary and at times caustic Sunday session of the Senate. Well, first off, whatever role Rand Paul played in, 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 in trying to stop the spying, 
my opinion, he's just gained five points on most of the other Republican candidates for president. I mean, the guy stuck his neck out. He's not going to win awards for it from his fellow congressman, but he he's indicating a level of sincerity that to me that strikes me as impressive. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to recommend Rand Paul per se more than anyone else, but I have to admit this: he stood up, he made a fight, he made a difference. It may be only a temporary difference, but still, he shows me something that I think is worthwhile. The article continues, it says, still the Senate was uh, signaled that it was ready to curtail the National Security Agency's bulk data collection program with likely passage this week of legislation that would shift the storage of telephone records from the government to the phone companies. I don't know. I listen to that, and and what we're talking about, I think, is the same metadata that the government had been collecting on all of our phone calls will not be collected by the phone company. I don't know if that's... Half empty, half full of it. What is what is the you know, this is the kind of news you look at. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Still something's been done. Um Paul forced a temporary expiration of parts of the post nine eleven Patriot Act. Uh Paul at one point said, Little by little we've allowed our freedoms to slip away. I agree with him a hundred percent. Uh, the expiration of surveillance authority demonstrates a profound shift in American attitudes since the days after September 11, 2001, uh, terrorist attacks, when national security was preeminent in both parties. Fourteen years after that attack, even as American conflicts continue abroad, a swell of privacy concerns stemming from both the vast expansion of the communication system and an increasing distrust of government's use of data has turned those concerns on their head. I think that's an interesting observation, and I think they're right. Uh, There has been a profound shift in American attitudes. And it didn't happen just in the last week. It's been building for some time. People are concerned about big government. People are concerned about a growing police state. And what we see here, insofar as the Congress has been forced, essentially, to repudiate at least parts of the Patriot Act, we're seeing evidence of this shift in American attitude. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. We don't need a bigger, better police state. We don't need Big Brother keeping an eye on us. Take your little spy apparatus and go spy on something else. Leave the American people alone. Um, where else? What else? The investigation. There's going to be, you know, this whatever is being done. It's not all that dramatic. The government is going to allow, is going to be allowed to maintain investigations and collect data on anyone that they've been spying on prior to June 1st, right? Even though they won't do everything from here on out, they can't collect the data on it. But if they've already been spying on particular individuals or whatever prior to today, then guess what? They get to continue. Um, Senator Paul's effort clearly angered many of his Republican colleagues. Senator John McCain 
Republican of Arizona was sparred with Mr. Paul on the floor over procedures, said later that Mr. Paul was not fit for the White House job he seeks. According to McCain, I've said on many occasions that I believe he would be the worst candidate we could put forward. It's hard to believe. I think the worst candidate we could put forward is probably George W. Bush, and second would be John McCain. And after that, then there's then there's Barack Obama. Maybe he's the worst one we could put forward. I don't see how you can point to a candidate and say, boy, this guy is unfit for office. After the people we've had in the presidency in recent years, and the people who've run for the presidency in recent years, who, I mean, this truly is a country where any little boy or girl could grow up to be president. And that includes some of us who are completely incompetent and unfit for the job. You can still be president. What the heck? Come on down. It's kind of like a hire the handicap thing at the White House. Uh, he denounced, Mr. McCain denounced from the Senate what he called a campaign of demagoguery and disinformation about the Patriots Act's spying program. Well, maybe if Congress had read the Patriot Act before they voted for it, and maybe if Congress had made the Patriot Act available to the people to read and understand, support or reject before Congress voted for it, the Patriot Act might not have been shrouded in conspiracy theories from the start. For example, let's suppose that there was an honest investigation as to who was really responsible for the 9-11 attacks. We might have more faith in the government and be less prone to conspiracy theories. Right now, about one-third of the American people believe that the 9-11 attacks were an inside job performed by our own government rather than a bunch of ragtag Muslims. Now, whether that belief is true or false, I can't tell you for an absolute fact. I think it probably is true. But I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know what the truth of the matter is. But what is known is that the government doesn't appear to mind being accused of treason by one-third of the American people. Instead of conducting a thorough investigation to eliminate uh, public concerns and public doubt as to who's responsible for 9-11, governments essentially said, screw the public. We're the almighty government. We don't have to explain anything. We haven't had, to this day, 14 years. We still haven't had a credible investigation as to what happened on 9-11. Government's refusal to address the concerns of one-third of the American people is deemed by many to be evidence that the government may, in fact, be guilty of 9-11. We didn't have a thorough investigation because the government didn't want a thorough investigation because it feared what it would exposed to the public. So if Mr. McConnell and other members of the Congress are concerned about the Patriot Act being compromised by demagoguery and disinformation, maybe they should learn the lesson of not voting for bills that they haven't even read or made available to the public, and they should learn the lesson of thoroughly investigating American disasters rather than, suppose, than just supposing they can get away with any lie they want to feed the public. Um, my point is, Mr. McConnell, he's concerned. Gee whiz, they're being beat by demagoguery and misinformation. Well, what do we get out here in TV land, radio land? If you're listening to Congress, where do you get a straight source of information? 
Where do you avoid the demagoguery? Any place? And how many of the people in Congress who complain about demagoguery, how many of them don't mind being a demagogue? They're going to sit back and say, oh, this other guy, that's demagoguery. That's bad. But when they... When the guy who's complaining, he does the same thing, not a problem. I'm just saying that nobody in Congress, they are an improbable bunch to be criticizing others of misinformation or demagoguery. We're looking for the truth, and a little bit of luck and the grace of God, we may find it, but I don't think we'll get it through Congress. Let's take a break for some commercial announcements. I'm Alfred Adams here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We'll be back in a moment. and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit discount gold and silver trading at dgscoins.com. That's dgscoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Adeskir with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. The program is brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver. What's next, Melody? We have a little special here, uh, Gold and Silver. We have one-ounce silver rounds. These are the Buffalo Rounds 2015, and we're also going to have one-ounce silver eagles. You get 20 of each, so that's a total of 40 silver coins, one-ounce silver rounds, and one-ounce American Silver Eagles, and a one-tenth ounce American Gold Eagle. And this includes all your shipping costs for $895. One-ounce Silver Eagles, 20 of those. One-ounce Silver Rounds, 20 of those. And your one-tenth ounce American Gold Eagle, $895. Give us a call at one 800 375 4188. That's 1 800 375 4188. Make sure you visit our website at dgscoins.com. dgscoins.com. You know, we talked in the first segment, we're talking about Rand Paul trying to, doing what he could to interfere with reenactment of the Patriot Acts. And I raised the point that. You know, if the government was concerned, Mitch McConnell, he's complaining that the Patriot Act has been at least compromised by demagoguery and misinformation. Well, one of the things that government, if they ever wanted to really stop that, again, like I was saying, they had to be, first, Congress should not be voting for bills they haven't read. That's point one. And point two, the bills, whatever the content of the bills are, should not only be made available to the Congress, to the Congress, they should be made available to the public where we can see and react and say, look, I like it or I can't stand it. Well, you know, and we can begin to put pressure on our congressmen, senators, and so on. Um, trade bill is another one, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Here's an article from the New York Times that illustrates this same point. Headline is Obama's trade deal faces bipartisan peril in the House. It's like, I don't know, the, the, something in the haunted house, one of the movies from back when I was a kid who don't go, you go, you go, you go in the West Wing and I'll go in the East Wing and we'll see if we can find what's going on. Peril in the house. Well, the bruising battle over President Obama's push for power to negotiate two potentially far reaching trade pacts will shift this week to the house where the White House faces entrenched opposition from Democrats and the stirring of rebellion from the the Republicans' right flank. On the one hand, I am just a little bit shocked and amazed the Democrats are doing something I approve of. I didn't think I was going to live long enough to see that happen, and here it is. And there is at least rebellion on the Republicans' right flank where they might not support this either. And we've told people, we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, passed out a phone number you can call at Congress and in the Senate, call your congressman, call your senator, send them faxes, send them email, tell them no, no, and no on this trans-Pacific trade deal. It will not help us any more than the NAFTA did, all right? Which just, here, part of the article I'm reading here, most congressional Democrats are skeptical that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is going to do us any good. They argue that since the North American Free Trade Agreement was improved, was approved in 1993, such accords have only hastened the flow of manufacturing jobs overseas and pressured wages downward through international competition. 
which is exactly what we've been talking about in this program for years. Corporations, their executives and shareholders have prospered, but globalization has helped hollow out the American middle class, right? Many Dem- according to many Democrats. I agree with them 100%. They're right. Uh, by contrast, most Republicans conceptually side with President Obama, complaining that the forces of globalization are inevitable. And the trade deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership will help open foreign markets to American goods and services. That's a lie. Oh, it might open foreign markets to goods and services that are made by corporations that were once upon a time American but are now currently located overseas, take advantage of cheap labor. But what gets me about this, the forces, the Republicans side with Obama, contending that the forces of globalization are inevitable. But is globalization really inevitable? And even if that's true, what about the Constitution? Will it inevitably succumb to the forces of globalization? Seeing this inevitability, has Congress decided to abandon the Constitution? Where does Congress find the authority in the Constitution to abandon the Constitution? To what extent does support globalist treaties like the Trans-Pacific Partnership constitute treason against the people of the United States of America? What about President Obama, who allows and encourages illegal aliens to come into this country? Where is his power to do that? He's here to enforce the laws that are made by Congress. He's not here to sit back and say, well, I'm not going to enforce those laws because that's, that's contrary to my policy. He is there. It is his job. If you hire me as a window washer and I show up and say, well, I'm not going to wash windows because I don't think these windows need to be. Look, the job you're hired to do is wash the windows. If the job you're hired to do is be chief executive of the United government of the United States, then your principal job is not to rule this country like a little dictator or some sort of a king. It is your job to go ahead and enforce the laws, right or wrong. Enforce them. That's your job. You don't get to make the call on whether it's right or wrong. That call is made by the judicial department. If somebody's got a complaint, they say this is a bad law, it violates the Constitution, it does this, that, or the other. All right, take it to court and let the judges decide. That is their job. It's not up to the executive to pick and choose, and he's not empowered to pick and choose. And he's certainly not empowered by anything in the Constitution to break existing law. And yet that's what we have. Um, So is globalization inevitable? I don't think it is. But even if globalization is an idea whose time has come, if that globalization is absolutely necessary and inevitable, it means that everyone's standard of living in this country is going to be significantly reduced. Inevitably, if we're competing with people who will work for $100 a week or less, right? Third world labor, dirt cheap. It's great for the corporations. They can produce their products with minimum cost of labor, and then they can sell it for maximum profit into countries like the United States that still have some money. But how long are we going to have any money if our jobs are shipped overseas? You know, the whole idea that this is going to help this country is just nutty. And... 
We had Mr. McConnell complaining that the Patriot Act was stopped by demagoguery and disinformation. Well, I guarantee you there's little more than demagoguery and misinformation to support the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And they have managed to keep the terms of that massive agreement largely secret from the American people. Now, what are we supposed to do is sit back and say, well, boy, that inspires my confidence. I know that whenever the government has a program that they won't tell me what's in it, I know they're working for my best interests. And that's why they won't tell me, because I just get happy feet and I'd be dancing around the building. Because, yay, yippee, the government is protecting me once again. And I know it because they won't tell me what they're up to. Well, that's obviously nuts. When the government won't reveal what's going on in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, insofar as they won't make it available to the public to see, study, understand, the government is telling us they are up to something that they know very well, that if you people have a chance to look at and understand, you're going to riot. They don't want you meddling with government power and control. They think they're so smart that they can do what's best for major corporations. They'll do well, global free trade, multinational corporations. But those of you that have jobs, had jobs, had an American dream here in the United States of America, you can kiss that goodbye because you're going to be competing head-on with China and India and Bangladesh and every other third-world country because without tariffs to protect us, your wages are going down and headed in the direction of the wages of those third world nations. Now, at the same time, those third world nations, their wages are probably going up. Global free trade is probably a good idea for the third world. But it's not at all helpful for the people in the United States of America, and more than likely Europe, maybe Australia, you know, Japan. You can open everything up, let everybody, all right, it's, 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 it's bad business for us. And I've said for a long time, I do not understand. If I were running a corporation and I manage manufacture widgets, the government says I've got to work to sell my widgets to Peking, all right, or maybe New Delhi. And I'm looking back and I'm saying, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, why is that? Why couldn't I just sell my widgets into South Dakota or Maine or Georgia? Isn't that enough of a market? Why do we even have to have international trade? I don't mean, I'm not, I'm not sitting here and saying there shouldn't be any. It's not my point. But we have people who advocate it as if it is the central and most important reality of our economic system. Oh, my gosh, we're not trading with foreign countries enough. So What? Why don't we just trade amongst ourselves? This is probably the strongest market in the world. And if we kept our tariff barriers up, we can keep this market for ourselves. Build our own TVs, build our own computers, build our own cars. We wouldn't have as many homeless. We wouldn't have as many people on welfare. We wouldn't see the American dream dissolving and on the verge of disappearing. We might even be able to trust our Congress, our Senate, and our President. There'd be a lot of good that could come from this. But instead, 
people who believe in the new world order and globalization. They're simply saying, well, we'll sacrifice the American people. We'll sacrifice the American economy to take care of the rest of the economies in the world. And I don't agree with that. I mean, that's what they appear. That I haven't heard them say that per se, but that's what their that's what their conduct indicates. They want the new world order. They want globalization. And in order to get it, they have to sacrifice the United States of America. Huh? They may even have to. They may even have to disintegrate it. There's only one country right now. It might be a little bit of an exaggeration to say that there's only one country. But it's pretty close to true to say that there's only one country in this in this world that poses a meaningful threat to what may become the new world order and global free trade. And that's the United States of America. We don't need global free trade. We don't need the new world order, and we have sufficient resources, military if necessary, to stop the new world order. From the perspective of the new world order and global free trade, it would probably be a good idea to see the United States disintegrate the way the former Soviet Union did back in 1991. They could take us down and divide the United States into five or ten regions. Those regions would be individually less able to resist the forces of the New World Order than the entire United States is when it functions as a single as a single entity. I, I you know, it's a it's a conspiracy theory that I can't back up with anything other than suspicions. I don't have facts to support what I'm saying, but for me it seems at least plausible. The people in positions of power want the United States destroyed. And insofar as they succeed in that objective, insofar as that objective is not just, you know, a bizarre idea of my own, my own mind, if it's true, if it's an accurate idea, insofar as they succeed, everybody listening to this program, Melody and myself, we will all be diminished. Our standards of living will be diminished except for a top 1%, maybe a tenth of a percent. They'll get fabulously wealthy, where the rest of us will be driven down. The middle class will become, at best, lower middle class. So in any case, it's interesting to me to see that there's resistance in the Democrat Party. It's surprising that Republicans are working with the president. Democrats are working against the president. Um, here I am agreeing with the Democrats. You know, who to thunk it? Um, what do you think, Melody? Is Trans-Pacific Partnership good, bad, and different going to help us, hurt us? What? Well, we had mentioned earlier, we talked through the break about Rand Paul. You know, here he is uh, fighting against the Faith Patriot Act, but yet, uh, you know, he's uh, he wants this trade agreement. He wants the TPP. He wants the European trade agreement. The uh, I think it's the TIPP. And, uh, you know, he, he's pushing for Obama to complete this this agreement uh, with this trade agreement. He says he, we need it for the, uh, you know, to revive the sluggish economic growth. Uh, we need it for our economy. And it's just I like, I, I, well, I disagree also, but I mean, it's, it's here you have, you know, someone that's a libertarian that is, uh, you know, fights for your rights in one hand and gives them away on the other. And it, it's, it's, it, it comes, 
confusing to a lot of people as far as, you know, where, where are these guys really coming from? And um, so... You know what's wrong with the libertarians? And I've run for public office as a libertarian. I ran for the Supreme Court of the state of Texas in 1992 as a libertarian. Um... What's wrong with the Libertarian Party is they don't see any foundation for the law and God's law. Their notions on the law are all based on reason, and I have no objection to that. But they take their reason, and they will do things like support things, like support global free trade, even though it's contrary to the best interests of the people in this country. I don't think anyone can really make a credible argument that global free trade is going to help the average American for the next any time in the next 20 years. We're going to pay a serious price if we if we go into it. And but logically, sure, log, logically, global free trade makes a great deal of logical sense. Unless you're on the side that's going to lose everything by embracing and the Paul, Paul is a Republican. Republican, but he does have the libertarian views. Yes. Well, I don't know what Paul's views on this. I'm used to speaking yeah. on libertarian. You can carry logic to a, to an extreme where it might be great for the world, but it's not worth anything for you. Let's take a break for some commercial announcements. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on financial survival. We'll be right back. Please stay tuned. mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now.
Hi, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Alfred Adask here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. What's next, Melody? Hey, we got four more days until Greece has to pay their billion-dollar debt. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Well, I, and that's just the beginning of it. Um, I mean, that that barely – they couldn't pay $750 million no. just a couple of weeks ago, and now they're in for a billion or a billion and a half, which is twice as much. They won't be able to pay that either. Here's an article from Ms. Shedlock. Uh, it says the headline is Zipras, that's the Greek prime minister, accuses Troika of credit, creditor monstrosity, urges Eurozone leaders to read for whom the bell tolls. What's that mean? It means that the Greek... <laughs> it means that all of this wrangling has finally reached the point. Well, the Greek prime minister has lost it. You understand? And I don't mean that he's necessarily wrong. That's not what I mean. He has just lost his inclination and ability to deal with his situation in a civil manner. He feels like he's dealing with crazy people, right? And mental illness is contagious, and he's getting a dose of it. The article says it appears the Eurozone is one step closer to an accident today. In a Le Monde editorial, Defiant Zipras threatens to detonate European crisis rather than yield to creditor monstrosity. What that means is they're not playing nice, right? If the negotiations have some sort of a chance of succeeding... Everybody's going to play nice. Even if they can't stand each other, they're going to shake each other's hand and smile. They're going to do their little dance. But when one side starts accusing the other side of behaving in a way that's monstrous, that's a pretty good indication that things are not going as well as a lot of people would hope. Greek Premier Alexis Tsipras has accused Europe's creditor powers of issuing absurd demands. And came close to warning that the far-left government will detonate a pan-European political and strategic crisis if pushed any further. Writing for Le Monde in a tone of furious defiance after the latest set of talks reached an impasse, Mr. Zipper said the, Euro, the Eurozone's dominant players were by degrees bringing about the complete abolition of democracy in Europe. I don't know. Is that an exaggerated claim or is it true, Melody? I don't. Uh, you know, it sounds that my first reaction to it was a, it was a silly claim. Come close to destroying democracy in Europe. But, you know, the European Union is being run in a way where once it's really well established, some people in positions of power who are not subject to being elected, not subject to political input from the people of Europe, are going to simply order Europe around. And to some extent, Zippers may be right. They may be trying to get rid of democracy. Um, and he goes on, complains that these people in power were ushering in a technocratic monstrosity with powers to subjugate states that refuse to accept the doctrines of extreme neoliberalism. Which is, and what are the doctrines of extreme neoliberalism, Melody? 
They are, you got to pay your bills. Greece says, what kind of crazy talk is that? People are monsters. They were trying to get us to pay our bills. And they know, and there is a certain level of monstrosity, because the Greeks are not entirely guilty, and the creditors are not entirely innocent. They loaned money the same way some people give booze or crack to addicts. They're called enablers, all right? And you can say what you want. The guy's addicted to crack. That's a bad thing. He's addicted to alcohol. It's a bad thing. But when other people are here, let me get you a fifth of scotch. Here, let me buy you a couple of rocks of crack. They're not helping you. And the people who loaned all this money to Greece in the first place were not truly helping Greece. And they should have known that. Was Greece foolish to borrow all this money? Yeah, probably. Were the lenders foolish to lend Greece all this money? Yeah, probably. Nobody's innocent on this thing. And we reach a point where both sides need to recognize no matter what they do, say, think, the Greeks aren't going to pay the bill. It can't be paid. It won't be paid. All right? And the creditors don't want to deal with that. They don't want to accept responsibility for lending more money than they should have to people who really didn't. You know, it was like a liar's loan that they handed out to a bunch of people in the late 1990s and early 2000s in this country. They had what came to be called liar's loans, where you could walk into the bank and they say, how much do you earn? So, oh, I make a quarter million dollars a year. Okay, if you say so, I just fill in the form, sign here, okay, and they issue the loan. When, in fact, you might be making twenty-five dollars or $50,000 a year. The banks would take the accepted the lies. And to some degree, the, the creditors in Europe, or the creditors that have loaned money to Greece, they accepted the lies. They are complicit in the liar loans. It's not just the guy who lied and said, I make a quarter million dollars a year when actually only makes 50. Is he a liar? Yeah. But what about the people who knew very well this guy's lying? I'd see by the car he drove in, and I can see the way he's driving. He didn't make it. He didn't make it. I bet you he didn't make a dime over 50000 a year, and he claims a quarter million. But it don't matter. We'll take it anyway. That's policy. The point I'm making is that the lenders are every bit as complicit in the problem in Greece as are the borrowers. And somewhere along the line, someone's got to just deal with it and said, look, you made a bad loan. You were stupid. Now you have to pay the price for that. And the creditors say, no, we don't. We don't want to pay the price for our stupidity. We only want the Greeks to pay for their stupidity, but we don't want to pay for our stupidity. And so the problem continues. Um... Zipra says for those countries that refuse to bow to the new authority, the solution will be simple, harsh punishment. It appears that the new European power is being constructed with Greece being the first victim, he said. Uh, you know, and he says if, if some, however, think or want to believe that the decision concerns only Greece, they're making a grave mistake, I would suggest that they reread Hemingway's masterpiece, for whom the bell tolls. And the bull of the bell tolls for thee. You're all in this. We're in a world, and not just Greece, not just the creditors of Greece, all of us are in this to some extent, where we are constantly being told what we're entitled to, but almost never reminded of what our responsibilities are. 
you have a responsibility to figure out if someone comes up and offers to loan you a bunch of money or give you a free lunch or, you know, you can fill in the blank. They make these offers. You can't just behave like a child all your life and take anything that looks good. Somewhere along the line, you have to recognize the adverse consequences that, that flow from failing to accept responsibility for your own life. Then you want to blame someone else. The creditors in Europe want to blame the Greeks. The Greeks want to blame the creditors. They're both responsible. But we do the same thing in this country. We're all looking for somebody we can blame for our problems, but we don't want to take responsibility for our problems. If I had to make a, and I'm only guessing here, but it crosses my mind that what this country needs is a way to encourage people to once again become responsible. Take personal responsibility for your life. Take personal responsibility for your lunch. As nutty as it seems, and it's so hard to pass up, but if somebody comes up and offers you a free lunch, tell them to go to H. I don't want your free lunch. You understand? I want to function on the basis of my own personal responsibility. And you have to do that because, in my opinion, part of the reason you have to do that is because there's going to be a day when the free lunches are going to disappear as will the entitlements and subsidies and so on. And those of us who have spent the last one, two, five years living irresponsibly without accepting responsibility for our own lives, you can all of a sudden find yourself in deep trouble. When the entitlements, the welfare, the subsidies, the free lunches, when they disappear, and they will, they're going to have to. How are you going to support yourself if you don't remember what it means to be personally responsible? How are you going to find a job? And I don't mean it's going to be easy. I'm not trying to tell you that, oh, take personal responsibility, and life will be, you know, it will turn into something golden for you. But I am suggesting that if you don't cultivate that idea of personal responsibility, if you don't embrace it and even come to enjoy it, you're headed for trouble that could be lethal. You know, if personal responsibility means that you live in a hut, you live in a hut. And if that's all you can afford, then that's all you get. You have to be extraordinarily wary of taking all these free you know, entitlements and subsidies that the government hands out. It makes you dependent you lose any sense of independence, you're going to lose that sense of personal confidence and conf competency where you think, I can make it no matter what. You get that when you become responsible. You walk away from that responsibility and say, well, I'm going to let somebody else support me. You are a dependent. You might still live a good life, as long as you're whoever the source of your income doesn't, doesn't go broke. You know, you can see a lot of people get away with being a dependent for their whole lives, and it'll be fine. But I don't think most will. I think most dependents will ultimately face a moment when they realize, oh, my gosh, 
I got nobody to turn to. And if you can't even count on yourself, big trouble. No. So in any case, Zipras is over there in the in the uh, complaining that the his creditors are behaving in a monstrous manner, which is probably true. Creditors are complaining that, that the Greeks are behaving in a in an irresponsible manner, and that's undoubtedly true. What do you do with it? You know, there's some things where you just learn your lesson and move on. You get the divorce. That's it. Goodbye. I made a big mistake. When you go your way, I go my way. Yeah. And you just take responsibility and go on and say, okay, I made a mistake. I learned from it. Let's see if I can not make that same mistake another time. Does that make any sense, Melody? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're almost out of time. And I do think, I don't know if we still have them online. We have um, Jim from West Virginia. Are you still there, Jim? Yes. I just have a real short comment. I, every point you've made is extremely well taken. But it has been 50 years ago in May that my dad told me about the private Federal Reserve counterfeiting operation. It never ceased to amaze him that they bought the United States with bogus bucks. If the Greek head of the Greek government sat there and he said, listen, there's no basis for paying back money to counterfeiters, much less interest on it. He said that publicly. It would wake up the whole European continent, and the whole ent- entire scam would go, Euro scam would go down. But I truly, honestly believe that the Greek government was talked into putting too many people into the wealth manipulation, uh, welfare roles, whether it government jobs or government goal or retirement programs. Yes, this is true. And they were talked into it because the goal was to destroy every nation on earth for the one world government. But yes, the Greeks fell into the trap. They marched into slavery, death slavery, but the debt is totally bogus. And once again, how any operation engaged in the sale and manufacture of counterfeit currency can possibly go broke, have a run on the banks is beyond my comprehension. But if they would come out and simply say, European Central Banks are mostly counterfeiters and people are stupid enough to invest in it. Oh, well, invest in a counterfeiting operation. So there are dirty hands on both sides of it. It's like an unholy conspiracy of sorts. Exactly. It's like the old thing, you can't con an honest man. If you were conned, you got to figure, what did I do? Where, Where did I go where I thought I could get a free lunch? That's what it comes down to. You can't con an honest man. Greece wasn't honest. The creditors weren't honest. I'm going to be honest right now and tell everybody we're out of time. Thank you for Thank your you. call, Jim. We'll be back tomorrow. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. Hope you'll tune in then. In the meantime, if good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye.
obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the3ws.thepowerherbs.com. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, You can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the3ws.thepowerherbs.com.
Talk Live. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. Oh, we're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk. Thanks for joining us on American Voice Radio. we got a great show. Uh, we're going to be talking about, for the first part, we're going to be talking about some of the uh, challenges uh, that we're facing in life and what we can do about it, get some inspiration. And also for the second part of the show, as promised, we're going to be talking with a uh, vaccine attorney, Alan Phillips. I know, it's kind of an odd thing. There are attorneys out there that specialize in vaccine rights for customers, you know, people, parents, uh, all kinds of uh, clients there um, uh, internationally as well. So uh, Alan's going to be with us because we want to talk with him about, you know, this new H.R. 2232 bill that's been um, filed in the House. And uh, it's been dubbed the Vaccinate All the Children Act of 2015. And uh, we want to get some insights from him on that and some other vaccine topics if we get time. So um, he's going to be with us for the second part of the show. So it'll be interesting to talk with him again. And um, if you want to check out his website, though, it's vaccinerights.com. If you want to check that out, you can. And um, we'll be talking with him real soon. well, beautiful day here in the Carolinas. A little bit of rain this week, but we needed some, and I have been lifting up the people in Texas and all the places that have been getting a lot of flooding uh, in prayer. I heard from a few people in Austin, Texas this week, and they've got a, a phenomenal amount of rain in a short time, and uh, it's uh, you know risking, threatening their homes and so forth. So we're going to remember to pray for the people of Texas. And while we're hitting the knees and seeking the Lord's face, you know, um, we want to lift up our righteous men and women in uniform. Don't forget them. And all of America. And I include all of this wonderful nation. And I ask the Lord for righteous men of valor with wisdom and understanding, truth and knowledge. And I beseech the Lord each day for truth and righteousness, as Isaiah 59 says we should. Now, it's God's will if he wants to, you know, step in and help us out. But it's our job to ask. So, um they never, never, ever waste a minute in praying and seeking the Lord's face. So it is not time that is lost. It is well spent. And uh, he owns everything anyway. Might as well uh, know him by name. And he knows you. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Okay, what do we got? We're going to New York. Uh, apparently, the folks in New York... Um, they're getting some tattoos, and along with that tattoos, they're getting some uh, rashes, apparently. A little bit of rash, swelling, itching. Uh, seems to last longer than four months, and in some cases, years. Um, 6% of the city's inked populace apparently has complained about irritating um, medical conditions linked to the tattoo. Uh, that seems to strike at those who get injected with certain colors of ink, um, of the people reported chronic skin conditions when they had red ink in their tattoo. 25% said it was when they had black ink. So New York uh, situation is similar to those um, over in Europe, countries in Europe reporting the same thing. And over there, they track tattoos and the health associated with them. So they're not sure what's going on, but there's complications they think is tied to the chemical composition of the colored inks. And they're not really sure about the process because it's really not standardized or regulated by dye manufacturers. So it's really not known what's going on, except there, there may be some chemicals like um, preservatives 
or brighteners added to the ink, and these chemicals can break down over time, and maybe this is causing a problem. So those who do contract a skin condition, uh, they said uh, it is painful. Uh, sores do sprout out up in between the inked parts of the tattoo. Uh, it itches, it raised lesions, and of course uh, they need to seek medical attention for that. And uh, if you're getting tattoos, I'm not a tattoo person, but a lot of people like them. All right, moving along in the quack report, I'm uh, going to talk about anthrax. If you haven't already heard, <laughs> the government uh, sent some live anthrax all over the place, thought it was dead anthrax. Well, four lab workers in the United States, up to 22 overseas, 22 people overseas have been put on post-exposure treatment. U.S. military inadvertently shipped anthrax samples by FedEx. Uh, Maryland-based lab had received live samples, prompting a cross-the-board urgent review uh, and tracked down other samples of anthrax that were shipped. And according to the Defense Department, shipments thought to be dead were shipped under less rigorous conditions than any live agent protocol would recommend. So samples left over at the lab in Dugway, Utah, they thought they were, you know, unusable. They tested them. They said they didn't contain any live agents, so let's just ship them everywhere. Experts told the Defense Department there was no risk to the public from shipping uh, these containers. One sample was also sent to the Joint United States Forces Korea portal in Austin Air Base in South Korea. 